Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 141. I wanted to say thanks to everybody for your uh, feedback on The Nightmare. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and if you have not uh, listened to that episode or seen that movie, it is available on Netflix right now. Seek it out. It is uh, marvelous. I'm a big fan of it. Um, trying to think if there's any other uh, announcements. There are, but uh, I'm going to bring in my co-hosts. For, co-hosts? Wait, what? Plural? Yes, that's right. Uh, we have, because we're talking about the Babadook today, uh, everybody was lining up, except for Josh, cause he's frightened. Uh, everybody was lining up to be a part of it. So we have Robert Hornack. Hi. And Reed Lackey. Hello. Double trouble. That's what oh. I say. <laughs> and me, Tyler Smith. Hi so, Tyler. Oh, hello Robert. Um, so yeah, uh, this is very exciting. Uh, so three windbags. This is going to be a super long episode. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> uh, but we're going to make it. So uh, a couple of announcements. The first off, it has nothing to do with, with more than one lesson, but it does have to do with me. So over at Battleship Pretension, we recently spent nine hours uh, this past Sunday recording about five separate horror movies, uh, recording commentaries for five separate horror movies. And they were Psycho, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, Child's Play, and Scream. So you can purchase those commentaries individually for $3, or you can buy all five of them for 10 That's a savings of $5. Wow. Uh, so David and I were there the whole time, but then you also uh, you have a number of uh, Battleship Pretension guests, including uh, comedian Bill Dwyer, uh, actress and comedian uh, Susan Burke, uh, podcaster Mike Schmidt and uh, many others, uh, including some friends of this show, uh, such as uh, Jason Eakin. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And what's neat is if you listen to them in order, you hear David and I just get punchier and punchier <laughs> and punchier. Uh, and so uh, it's a lot of fun. And it is a way to um, support Battleship Pretension. Um, we don't, we always give people the option of giving donations, but we, we'd rather do this, you know, where you get something out of it and we get something out of it. Uh, and so you can go to battleship pretension.com and right on the side, it'll say battleship pretensions, battleship pretension slasher commentary. Uh, you can click on that. And, uh, like I said, it's 10 bucks or maybe if you want to get them individually, if, if maybe you're not interested in the child's play commentary, I kind of wasn't. Um, that's a joke, of course. Uh, not at first, the then uh, you can do that as well, but uh, but I would really appreciate that. Now there's something else going on over more than one lesson. Now obviously it's Halloween times, but our friend Reed Lackey thought now is the perfect time <laughs> for whatever reason uh, to go completely off brand and uh, write about some other stuff that has nothing to do with Halloween. Even though once again it's Halloween times, and this is what we do. For the month of October. But whatever. He's going to do his own thing. It's a thinking uh, man's Halloween times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, Reed has a, a series of articles. And I believe by the time this is posted, um, I believe all three of them will be available at morethanonelesson.com. Reed, what, what, what is it? What are these articles about? Tell me. Uh, well, just in a word, it's uh, sort of trying, attempting to map the landscape for how Christians want to seriously engage with art. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically in the realm of film but um, hopefully using principles that could extend to anything, music, uh, literature, uh, any, any brand of art. Um, it's just really been on my heart for some time about uh, sort of how little time and attention Christians take for their imagination. Usually when they give those kind of things thought, they only think about it in terms of I'm not supposed to watch right. XYZ, mm-hmm. I'm not supposed to listen to you know XYZ, whatever it is. And so I 
you know, just a lot of thoughts were sort of bubbling up in me, and I just wanted to, in compartmentalized ways, sort to be, uh, sort of begin to map. This is what it looks like to mm-hmm. begin to recognize good art from bad art, to recognize the the power and potential of your own imagination, and kind of the calling and responsibility. Um, and so. Uh, you know, a little bit of how to engage with it. I've also got a few thoughts about um, how to create it as well. And mm-hmm. so um, so I, I, I foresee possibly having to write those as well. But that's the sum of it. Go get them, buddy. Uh, I, from the panel, which I'm still trying to get video of, somebody did take video of the panel at Alpha OmegaCon. Uh, and so I'm trying to get that and post it. But uh, from the panel and just in our own interactions, I know that uh, uh, very few people speak as elo- speak and write as eloquently about the role of the imagination mm-hmm. for the Christian as you do. And so, listeners, I highly recommend going to morethanonelesson.com and reading his articles. They are written in a progression, so go and read. Uh, so what what uh, what's the order here? So the very first one I just called The Calling of the Christian Imagination, which is the broadest possible terms. And then the second one uh, is about differentiating between good and bad films. Uh, and then the third one uh is, uh, and you said the third one will be posted by the time yes. you get to. So the third one uh, is more about the role of discretion mm-hmm. and uh, discernment in how you cho- what you choose to engage with right. and what you choose to stay away from. Um, so those three subjects kind of compartmentalized were what was primarily on my mind about. And I'm, again, that part is just talking about how we as Christians take in art mm-hmm. um perhaps soon eventually definitely i want to talk about how we create it mm-hmm. but um but these are just talking about how we take it in yeah and it's it's definitely a discussion that is being had right now uh oddly enough, I, and i'm not sure what it is about war room specifically i mean god's not dead made a lot of money i mean christian movies for the last few years have done well but for some reason war room is the one that put people over that is the one that caused people to be having this conversation on Gospel Coalition and a number of other websites, big websites, that really feel like, okay, let's let's deconstruct hmm. these movies spiritually and artistically. And yeah. so, uh, so yeah, uh, now is the perfect time to uh, share it uh, you know, so that people can go to more than one lesson and read it uh, themselves, So, uh, including you, the listener. All right. So... Enough of that off-brand discussion, all right? (laughs) We uh, are smack in the middle of October now. We've done two Halloween Times episodes already. We talked about It Follows. We talked about The Nightmare, uh, both 2015 films. uh, Both of them, I believe, in my top 10 at the moment. But my favorite movie of last year, my absolute favorite... And it surprised me. I wasn't expecting it. And I feel like that's usually the best when you go in just being like, I've heard good things about this. And then it just blows you away. Yeah. My favorite movie of last year was written and directed by Jennifer Kent, and it is called The Babadook. Now, I realize I said it earlier, so it can't be, it doesn't have to be a big presentation. But um, so The Babadook, it was like so many horror movies, it just kind of fades in. You hear, you hear a lot about it before you ever see a trailer because someone saw it at some film festival somewhere and said, this thing is terrifying. And it's the most, you know, I believe uh, there was a quote floating around that William Friedkin, yeah. who directed Reed, your favorite movie of all time, he did. Wow. Uh, yeah. The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, wait a minute. It's not your favorite horror film. It's your favorite film of all the time? The Exorcist is my favorite film. That's amazing. Yeah. 
I, I guess I should listen to that. Episode. Robert, what's your favorite film of all time? My favorite. I, don't I forget. Have an, I don't have an answer to that. Mm, you should work on one. Yeah. Anyway, uh, do, you like some, what, do you realize what podcast you're on? This well, is yeah, how I, I think. Maybe I represent those people who love all movies. I have no use for those people. And, Go uh, and listen to film spotting. It almost depends on like what what mood I'm in or what what genre I'm sort of in now. Then I I have a favorite of that I genre. See. Okay. So but, right now, what what would you say? Let's see. Maybe Rambo. Wait, what? what? <laughs> I did enjoy you you're talking about the, 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 the one that's just Rambo or the just first, Ram- I'm sorry, first uh, blood. First, first blood. blood. Okay, my bad. That is a good one. First blood first or Rambo blood. one, I think yeah. is what it's called. Yeah. I Not can't really. tell if you're being sarcastic, but that is a very good movie. And no, Brian it's the first Dennehy movie that popped awesome. to mind because okay. I, I, for some reason, I, I found myself sort of in this trail of, like I'm following a trail of manly movies or mm. action movies, whatever you want to call them. I, I watched uh, the Bourne movies hmm. for the first time, yeah. uh, all the Rambo movies. I watched all the uh, Rocky movies that are available currently. That's a um, lot of fun. I and a lot of movies. Um, and some that are tough. Rocky Five's a little rough. Yeah. Rocky Four's a little rough. Yeah, but it's, they're all rough. It's so stupid. It's it's fun. Oh, yeah. this Rocky is actually a great four. opportunity for me to apologize for bringing up points that I liked about the Rocky movies. In I, was it the Whiplash episode? Or the, I, I think so. Yeah, I really and, enjoyed that discussion. But I love the Rocky movies. But I, I, I'm not apologizing for my points of view. But the fact that those points of view mirrored almost exactly what you and Josh talked about in your minisode about Rocky. Now, how on earth could you have possibly known ahead because of time? Maybe uh, I didn't uh, look at the site for a week. Maybe <laughs> I apologize for that too. Maybe so though there. you did. Uh, some kind of weird psychic psychic ability to know you did listen to last week's episode when I made fun of yes, you on exactly. the podcast for not listening to the show. And I, I texted you and said, hey, I'm listening to you right now mocking me for not listening to the episode. <laughs> so we got all meta. Oh, good times. Yeah. Behind the scenes stuff, everybody. Indeed. So, uh, so yeah, I had heard that William Friedkin had, you know, said yeah, the Bobadook was like it. the scariest thing you'd ever seen. And so it was just like, man, I got to see this movie. I watched the trailer at, so I regularly keep very late hours, and my bedroom is the cr- is across the house from my office, and that's a lot of that's a fair amount of darkness to walk through. I watch the trailer at three a.m. and then decide now's the time to go to bed. It's a bad call on my part. Wow. Um, and that walk seemed particularly treacherous. That is a very effective trailer. Um. So effective, in fact, that a lot of people were turned off by the film that it was a trailer for. Hmm. But uh, so I went into Babadook being expecting to be just terrified the whole time and just having it be like a really moody, you know, uh, horror film that, you know, wouldn't really affect me that much. But it was just a, just a really good exercise in style. That's what I thought it was going to be. What I got was, was well, my favorite movie of the year, hmm. but just... One of the most fully realized, in my opinion, explorations of bitterness and guilt and grief, grief and yeah. emotional oppression of oneself. And I would say parenthood, except I'm not a parent, so I don't I can't speak to that specifically. Um, I'll probably have some things. To yeah, say about I, that. I, I was going to throw to you. I didn't want you to feel uh, some tokenism here, but uh, <laughs> that is why you are here. Um, <laughs> oh, understood. So. Uh, I just, and that's just, that's just thematically. And the fact that the theme was, the themes were so tied to the artistic choices is, and it's such a wonderfully realized film. Every 
ounce, every ounce of the film, every every inch of space on the screen is fully utilized to to make you feel a certain thing. But I didn't feel manipulated. It felt all earned. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, and we'll we'll get more into specifics in a moment. But it just it's a film that blew me away. I believe this is Jennifer Kent's full uh, first uh, feature film. Mm-hmm. I think I believe she had made this as a short mm. uh, a few years ago. Um, and I, I can't wait to see what she does next. I'm intrigued. I don't know if it's going to be another horror movie or just a, a, a non-genre movie, but whatever it is, if she makes if she makes movies this well, <laughs> she will quickly become one of my favorite working directors. It's it's amazing. So that's my response to it. Big and hyperbolic. I will now throw to. I'll go alph- alphabetically. First names. Read. Okay. Oh, sorry, um, Robert. No, it hurts. <laughs> um, uh, well, I, staying as brief as I can. Uh, when you were on the It Follows episode with Jeff, mm-hmm. you guys talked about like the phases of horror. Uh, for a long time, loving the genre as much as I do, I had kind of stepped out of it. It was kind of like a, a the in the midst of the sort of the hostile and the saw kind of films. Uh, I had stepped away from it, but I really feel like recently horror is is undergoing a kind of a renaissance. I think yeah. some of the best horror films have been are being made right now than have been made since like the late seventies, early eighties. And um, that's just my opinion. But the reason that I state that is because my favorite of the bunch is the Babadook. Mm. That's that's um, that's not only my favorite horror film in over a decade, but uh, when I the next time that I redo my my personal list, it's likely to 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 land in the list very high up at the top already. I yeah. the first time that I saw it, um, I I did enjoy it a great deal. Um, I I loved it walking away from it, but it was so cemented when I watched it the second time, how much I adore the movie and how rich it is in, in what it's dealing with and how brave it is. We'll talk more specifics later, I'm sure, but just how brave it is to deal with what it's dealing so deliberately. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm, yeah, I, I just, I can't heap enough praise onto it. I do. I do think that there might be a certain sensibility, um, of someone who, who, is easily frightened where the movie might really get under their skin because mm. I think it's effective. But aside from that, I would I would recommend it to almost anyone. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's such a powerful and effective film. I love it. I can't say enough good about it. I didn't <clears throat> I didn't see the trailer for it ever. I still mm. haven't seen a trailer for it. I remember hearing you you say maybe on a podcast that you really enjoyed it or just in in daily life. And I heard other people say it, and then I started hearing, just generally speaking, that it was being well-received. And, and then I saw that it was uh, streaming on Netflix. I thought, well, mm-hmm. there's no excuse now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, But the, here, here's the thing is I don't come at horror movie. I'm not a, a horror movie guy. Um, I, I haven't seen everything. I, I don't gravitate toward that um, genre really in any way. And so I, and I've, I've tried to parse this in my own mind. I don't know if it's because... It sounds a little pretentious, but because maybe I know too much about how these things are are being made, that mm-hmm. I can't get into it in, in an emotional way. It's more of an academic kind of way, so I I can't really be scared. Mm. That's that, of course I can be scared. Yeah, um, paranormal activity scared me, mm. for instance, and it's like the simplest possible setup ever. Um, I yes. have not seen any of the paranormal activity films, but there is one coming up. The name of which I don't remember. It's paranormal activity. What was it? Ghost. Dimension. Ghost dimension. Uh, and it actually looked pretty good and pretty 
freaky. I, I was uh, sitting next to front of the show, Jason Aiken in a movie theater and the trailer finished and I leaned over and said like, that doesn't look bad, that bad. And he, he leans over to me and goes, I'm very frightened right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, so yeah, it, it actually looks pretty effective. That's funny. Well, I you know, I say that I can't be frightened. Maybe it's a delayed reaction of sorts because here's my paranormal ex- activity story. Saw it with Aubrey, who it turns out, you wouldn't think by looking at her or talking to her that she enjoys scary movies, hmm. um, but she does. She likes to watch scary movies. And so we went to see it just kind of on a lark, like, hey, let's go see this movie. It looks a little cheesy, actually. That's what we thought. So we wow. went in, and there were parts of it that were like, yeah, this is actually genuinely scary. And then there are other parts that were so dumb, I thought, story-wise, that mm-hmm. way took me out. And the end of the movie, the general effect on on me was, this was a bad movie. I didn't enjoy this movie. I'm not scared. Mm-hmm. Cut to the next night at work, and I tended at that job, I tended to stay late mm. at the office by myself to look through scripts is when I was working on CSI Miami and uh, I would get a script late and then the writer would leave me alone next to this giant window darkness outside darkness down the hallway because all the lights go out except for the emergency lights oh boy so and then I have to like make copies of the script and pass them around to the so that writers will have them the next day yeah so long story short Okay, so I was running down the hallway. I <laughs> yeah. ran down the hallway because it was too dark uh, near the uh, the writer's desk. Ran all the way back to my desk, gathered st- stuff up as quickly as I could, and got the heck out of there. Um, because I was thinking about moments from paranormal yeah. activity. So, obviously, I can mm-hmm. be scared. Yeah. It just seems like in the moment, I can't be scared. And so, I went into Babadook um, thinking, okay, here's another horror movie that's going to have this happen, a scare moment. You know, it's going to be cut in this way and moody lighting and the music. And people being scared themselves, and so maybe I'll be, you know, I, di- I didn't believe that it would actually entertain me in that way. And then it did. I was I was stunned at how genuinely scary this movie was. Mm-hmm. But not being the kind of guy that gravitates the, toward this kind of movie, I wasn't, I still wasn't willing in my heart to say, you know, I really love this movie mm-hmm. for doing what it set out to do. It wasn't until, I guess, I don't know if I'm getting too far ahead in the story, in the like, revealing story points, but... Um, it was the moment when she's screaming at the the darkness in her room and the kid is behind her oh, toward the wow. end of the movie mm-hmm. that I realized, and I'm kind of slow on the uptake, but I realized this is a movie about challenging your own grief and challenging mm-hmm. your own bitterness and all the things you listed earlier. Yeah. I was like, oh, whoa, and it kind of, in, in a sense, it kind of did a sixth sense kind of thing to me. I was like reflecting on the entire movie in yeah. the space of like that. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh my gosh, this entire thing has been setting up for this moment where she is finally able to confront her grief and do something about it oh, yeah. and I was like this is an amazing movie and suddenly I loved it mm-hmm. it was like this is I, I hesitate to call it the, my favorite film of the year um, but it's definitely up well, there Grand Budapest came out last year and you're pretty predictable so I'd say that's probably your favorite movie of last year correct yes, an animated ski chase scene you know beats <laughs> Babadook apparently um, no but it's a, a fantastic movie and I can't mm. I can't recommend it highly enough either even to people I, I guess I can speak for those people in the audience who are listeners who don't gravitate to horror movies this is a movie that if you like movies that deal with real emotions even in the context of a genre, pure genre film mm-hmm. that has all these tropes, but that does them well. Check out this movie. Yeah, and not like not only that. This is the kind of film, and I said this a couple of times when I recommended the, the film to people. This is the kind of film that exemplifies why I love the horror genre. Mm. Because when it's done like this, 
It has, and they don't all have to be done like this. One of my favorite movies is Halloween, which doesn't have nearly the thematic depth or complexity as this. Um, not that there's not any in it, but right. but it's just not, that's not its intention. Um, but when this kind of thing happens, it's the reason Exorcist is my favorite film, among other things. It's like when this kind of thing happens, this genre is immensely effective and powerful for giving you metaphorical context with which to do these kinds of things in your own life. Mm -hmm. And I point now point to the Babadook because I think it's much more accessible than the exorcist. Mm -hmm. Um, So I point to the Babadook as like, this is the kind of horror film that, that show that I can tell to people. This is why I love horror films Mm -hmm. because there's this and it's effective and it's creepy and it's scary. But then when you talk about it, there's all of this yes. as well. And and so, yeah, I love it. It was actually my second favorite movie of 2004, 2014, only because I saw Calvary as well. And, oh, and Calvary movie. is my favorite. But, but no, it's it, if, if Calvary hadn't come out the same year, I'm sure it would have been It's kind of like a spiritual well. horror movie in a, in a weird it can way. can be, yeah. Conversation for another time. Dark. And Dark. probably another episode, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people have, re- should have requested that episode. No. Um, I have seen half of the film because uh, I watched it while I was on vacation, I was not able to finish it. Uh, but what I saw, I just... Uh, no, it's not the kind of movie you want to watch on vacation. No. Well, sure I can it make it work, relax. I think. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's just like, it's like, ah, Calvary. It's like, well, I'll finish this after I get back from uh, Epcot Center. Like right, yeah, <laughs> Epcot Center. And, so, yeah. Um, so, did I say Cavalry or Calvary? I believe you said Calvary. Okay, I think you good. said it correctly. All right. yeah. I never know. I don't really know now. Not that I have much cause to use the word cavalry, but when I was a kid, I would only, if I ever had to say it, I would say cavalry. I was like, oh no, that's not right. So I'm trained, no matter which one I'm saying, to question which one I said. I'm like so. that with the word coach and couch when I write them. I'm mm. like, uh, I think I'm going to spell coach. No, no, I did. Didn't. <laughs> I, I'm okay. I don't know why. I have to say it in my head, then say it out loud, and then look at the word. Uh, Off point. No, it's fine. Um, so here's the thing about this episode. I was so excited to talk about it. I was excited to hear what you guys had to say about it. Here's the thing, though. This film is so dense, I don't even know where to start. Hmm. Now, obviously, per the general format of, of the podcast, uh, we talk artistically first and then move into thematics and then we talk about the companion film and that sort of thing. But to me, like part of my appreciation, and I, this seems somehow sacrilegious given the stuff we talk about on this podcast in general, the, the artistic choices are so infused with the themes, yeah. I have a hard time separating them, and that's as it should be, I think, as, as the filmmaker intended. Um, like I can talk about uh, the, some of the acting choices. You know, I can talk about the wonderful art direction and, and that sort of thing. Um, and it is good in and of itself, but the but it, the reason it's so effective, it's good, but the reason it's so effective for me is because of the the overall whole. Like once you again, like, like what you said, Robert. Like once you once you see what the film is as a whole, like in its entirety, then every detail becomes just saturated with that thing. Yeah, and that to me is invigorating. But it makes it very difficult to like deconstruct because I feel like I'm not going to be doing it justice. 
Well, one thing, I mean, not to be too presumptuous, but one thing we could start when I try to tell people about this movie or to to entice them or engage in a conversation, I, I usually just start with the basic premise, which is essentially that. Um, and I think we can probably safely say if you have not seen the Babadook, then this is going to be a spoiler heavy episode. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and if you don't want to be spoiled, like go see it. It's like Robert said, it's available on Netflix. Please see it. Um, and I, I can't think of anything more boring than listening to people talk about how stylistically beautiful something is <laughs> if you haven't seen that thing itself right yeah, that's a good point so i'm sorry um, uh, no 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 that's okay just the the premise is essentially there is a, a a woman who has lost uh she's lost her husband and she happened to lose her husband in a car accident while they were on their way to the hospital for her to deliver their first child mm-hmm. um and so the the birthday of her son is also the day that she lost her husband. Right. And it drops us in right at that point. The son is, I think, I don't know if it ever explicitly says his age, but I think he's seven. I think seven. Seven. Is what so, I, yeah, what I remember. So he's, uh, so he's seven years old, um, full of imagination and, and quirks. And uh, then they discover a book on his shelf called Mr. Babadook. And they begin to read it, and it creates. Well, we all got the shivers. Um, and it it presents this scenario in which a being of some sort is trying to get into your home, and uh, so from there it extends to all of the 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 thematic interlinking that yeah. you're talking about. I have to say something right there, though. If if I would if I had not seen the movie and I was a listener. I would still not be sold because mm. that sounds like it could be any horror movie. Mm-hmm. It's mm. like some creepy thing happens and it it lets the spirit into the house. It's like, okay, that's like 50,000 movies. It's it's the kind of movie where you ha- you ha- there's no way there's no way to recommend this without it sounding stupid. But you have <laughs> yeah. to see it to get why it's so good. It can't be it can't be teed up in any uh well, I think a big portion of it is that before before we ever get to the Mr. Babadook book, we see, so the main character's name is Amelia, played wonderfully by Essie Davis, and we'll talk about her in a moment, and her son is played by Noah Wiseman, his name is Samuel. So we see their life together. We see that Samuel is a very, he's got a lot of imagination, but the imagination tends to go dark, and so mm-hmm. he like... He invents weapons that he takes mm-hmm. to school and gets in trouble. Yeah. You know, he's very uh, he's very annoying, honestly, in a lot of ways. I mean, that is if you read any comments on IMDb, on Netflix, on on iTunes, if you read people's comments, negative comments about the Babadook, they will the word annoying will come in Ugh. in regards to this kid. That's mm. so ridiculous. Now now I okay, not to to my own horn, but it's you guys as well. Like, I feel like we're savvy enough filmgoers to just be like, all right, he's an annoying kid. She is also annoyed. The exactly. more annoying we find him to be, right. the more annoying the more annoying it's going to be for her. This is not a situation where I find a kid like the little girl in uh, Five Hundred Days of Summer who's supposed to be cute and adorable, and Oof. I find her annoying. That's a different thing. Yeah. This is a genuinely annoying character, and if the character is annoying and meant to be so, and other characters treat him as so, then the film is succeeding, not failing. Correct. And that means that if that is scaring you away, not literally, if that's if that's 
turning you off of the film, then I'm reluctant to say this. You're wrong. <laughs> you're, you're incorrect. You're not realizing what the, you're not accepting the, the reality of the film. You're right. requiring that the reality, that the film be what you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Right. And that kid is fantastic. I think oh, he's he marvelous. Both think, of those performances yeah. out of the park. And so, but you know what? I'm sorry to, but yeah, it's, when you say that the kid was good and also the mother was good, it's easy to say the mother was good because adults know what to do with acting and stuff. But when you see a kid yeah. in a movie that's this naturally good yeah. at being freaked out, oh. at being mad, at yeah. at this impassioned love that he wants to give his mom in her worst moments, oh, God. and it's real, you just feel feel this realness coming out of the kid. I don't know. I, I, part of me was like, what what did the director do to make this kid be this way i don't or know is he just I, that I, way it's some kids just seem to know I'm, i have i have no doubt that he's older than seven but was playing younger it, that happens yeah. but some kids just seem to know and i'm sure he probably i'm sure he worked with the director i'm sure he worked yeah. with uh, uh se davis um to make this to make this work um and what's more and i, I i'm probably getting ahead of myself a little bit but uh so we're seeing her struggle to raise this kid that is by all by all accounts a problem child while she has a job and because it coincides with the death of her husband not only is there an emotional aspect to that and there's probably a certain degree of resentment probably and a certain degree can be taken out i think (laughs) there is resentment there um she's never really allowed herself to feel her husband's death because she had to go into mom mode immediately Mm -hmm. and start taking care of this kid. And so, but the resentment is still there. And that to me is the best part of Noah Wiseman's performance because he is a kid who so desperately wants his mom to know that he loves her. But you also get the impression that it's just like he is being so affectionate to her, maybe because he maybe I think he wants some affection back that he's probably not getting. Right. Mm-hmm. He doesn't f- like a kid who makes weapons is a kid who does not feel safe. And this kid does not feel safe in his own home. He doesn't mm-hmm. think his mom's going to come after him physically. Um, but he just feels like, all right, I'm, I'm on my own. My mom clearly doesn't like me that much. So it's just going to have to be me. And so. That's the thing is just the kid is I'm going to use the word annoying. It feels wrong to say it because I feel so much sympathy for him. But like he is annoying because because he doesn't have any support system at all. He's annoying in a way that I genuinely believe would exist in real life. I feel like you could see this kid on any playground at any school. Um, And so that's just him. And then with her, you know, she's just so tired all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She can't sleep without him you know there's a wonderful little scene where she's trying to sleep and he's sleeping next to her and he puts his arm around her his arms around her but they're right around her neck so he's literally like choking her she can't sleep um there's even a moment where she's trying to pleasure herself because and the thing is like when i saw it in the theater there are a couple of chuckles here and there but i think the rest of us understood that like you know I don't want to get too like specific, but like the three of us are married. And like, if we lost our spouse, then it's like, Oh, well that at the, the sexuality is like a big part of marriage and a big part of your life. And now that's gone and she can't even, so she's like, all right, well, it's not like she's out with a man or something like that. This is just the thing she wants to do for herself just to feel good. And that can't even happen. The kid Mm -hmm. bursts in and at the least opportune, least opportune. Oh my gosh. Um, And so 
she's just exhausted and angry and stressed and you get all of that sense you you really sympathize with her uh for the first half of the film Mm -hmm. um and i don't even have you know i i have not lost my spouse i do not have any children but the film does such a great job of putting you in her mindset which is which i think is why noah wiseman had to be so annoying because nothing will put you in her mindset of like i hate my kid than you the audience hating that kid right yeah um and it's just, it's such a brilliant, and then actually about, maybe not halfway through, but like 65% of the way through, the film shifts perspectives. And then it's the That's kid's true. story, mm-hmm. uh, because we're way more on board with him, and suddenly his making weapons is a really good call. Yeah. Um, so, so the reason, so all of that was to say, and I guess we just sort of kind of backed into talking about the acting, but, um, you know, Robert, when you when you said that like, to the average person, the way we just described it sounded boring, and or at least at the very at the very nothing distinct, nothing unique. But showing this relationship, which is a relationship out of a regular drama, mm-hmm. that to me is what makes this so. What makes everything that comes after so effective? It's like The Exorcist in that sense, mm-hmm. not merely because it's a single mother and a, and a kid, but just you need you spend time establishing the reality that they're living in yeah and then you introduce yes. this other element mm-hmm. and i feel like i'm re- i I'm, I'm not sure if i can say this specifically but like i feel like the vast majority of great horror movies do that um they don't just throw you right in the middle i mean some of them do uh halloween i think does but uh but jaws even though jaws starts with a killing you know we get a sense of Brody and the town and the town and all that sort of thing long before there's a perceived threat. And so I feel like this kind of takes its cues from, from those there's a patience to it that honestly, I can see a certain type of horror fan not having any patience for. Hmm. So, uh, so we can, you know, move on. I guess that was us talking about the premise. Well, let me say this, that I, I feel like that I, I, in a sense, I feel like I'm the person who can represent people who don't like horror films. Mm. Not that I don't like horror films, but I don't gravitate toward them. So the the kids' performance, I think, f- first and foremost, the uh, the shots, the shot selection, mm-hmm. just the composition of the shots, kind of brought me. I, I tend to be kind of a film nerd. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Wes Anderson earlier. I I like his films because they are so overcomposed, if you will. Yeah. Um. But but films that make you feel comfortable are are that you you know that the filmmaker is a strong filmmaker right away from the mm-hmm. first shot because of the composition or because of what yeah. they're showing you yeah. um, makes me feel comfortable. And it's like, okay, even though this is a horror movie, I feel like I can continue to watch this because the filmmaking itself is good mm-hmm. and it's strong. That coupled with this really intense and realistic uh, uh, perf- performance of these two characters or mm-hmm. uh, two actors – I believed it so much. So I believe in the characters because the actors are so good. And I believe yeah. in the filmmaker because the shots are so good. This is These are the kind of things that pull me into a movie. Yeah. If I'm not necessarily geared toward that kind of movie, I can still kind of enjoy it. Um, I counter that to, just on a, a side note, to Aubrey, who tend, if it's like a movie that, or a genre that she doesn't really care for, she's already, in some sense, kind of written it off. Yeah. Um, but I think because of my background in film school and just loving films so much, and not that she doesn't love films, um, I feel like I can almost watch any movie mm. um, to a certain point. But a movie that is so far flung from my general, what I like to watch, um, kind of has to work a little harder. Mm-hmm. And this one does. 
and yeah. it does it very well. It does it very easily, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I'm pulled into the story, and I pu- I'm pulled into the believability of the story, and the kind of gradual introduction of horror into it. Yeah, it all felt real. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it got to the point where I forget at what point in the movie this is, but when there, there becomes a question mark over her, like is she just imagining this stuff? Right. You mm-hmm. know, I think of well, movies like. Black Swan. Mm-hmm. That I, I know you love that movie. I yes. think that was your favorite movie that year. Yes, yes it was. Um, that I didn't care for too much. I like people going crazy, Robert. You That's do. what I enjoy. <laughs> Little nuts uh, <laughs> goes a long way. Um, well, I I feel like that. I forgot where I was going with that. That's. <laughs> I think all that all that to say that you know these are these are things that pull me in, even if it's a genre I don't like, and I can speak on behalf of people who don't gravitate gravitate toward horror films that this is a movie that if you like films at all that are made well um you will get sucked into the horror aspect of it well and i think there's like that's an astute point because it's valuable uh some horror films even some great ones are valuable uh almost exclusively for their qualities as horror films but babadook is not that case like even if you are not really a horror fan there are elements of this with which you can find value and which you can yeah. relate. I think uh, in, in that sense, it, it kind of goes in the category, of, well, in several ways, it actually goes in this category of like Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. You know, Polanski, brilliant filmmaker, takes on the Look genre. Who's thinking ahead to next week. Whoops. That's all right. Yeah, oh, oh, that's, that's right. That's what yeah, we're talking a, about next yeah, week. Yeah, it's an advertisement. Um, Spoiler alert. You know, it's just so well, that's another movie that's so well composed and where the camera is, it makes you kind of go... What's happening over there? Yeah. Um, and this movie is the same way. It takes its cues from the great filmmakers, and it does it very well. Yeah, it's, you know, it, so I did mention earlier that you're a big fan of Wes Anderson, and he's he's somebody who has such a such an eye for art direction. Like, like I said, with this film, like everything, everything your eye is comprehending or your ear is hearing is a choice he made. It's not by default. It's not Mm -hmm. like, uh, well, we're focusing on this over here, but if their eye goes wandering elsewhere, uh, what are you going to do? No, he is a guy who every, every frame of his film is complete. Mm -hmm. And this feels like that to me because they could have focused just on the relationship and it still would have been pretty good. Um, the story could have been the same. The music could have been the same. Uh, the horror elements could have been the same. Uh, and it still would have been pretty good. But the camera work, and I th- definitely think the art direction, which and the use of color, or the lack thereof, mm-hmm. where these two characters, their faces are drained of all color. Like, they, his mm-hmm. especially. He looks like he is uh, pale as can be. Mm-hmm. He looks like a sickly child, um, which he actually is not. You know, he's healthy, but he's not in a healthy environment. Uh, and then the house itself looks particularly gray. Mm-hmm. It, and so when the time comes and she busts out that Mr. Babadook book, the pages, so it's it's drawn in black and white. The pages look a lot like the life that they're living. Yes. Mm-hmm. And to the point where you just start to kind of feel like you're living in this book. And just every moment of it uh, from the sound design to the color to the use of music it's all it's all uh thought out everything is everything in the film is a function of a choice that she has made uh to put you to pull you full uh, further into this world and into 
uh, or, and I guess into the mind of uh, the Amelia character. I have to add um, to that list of uh, filmmaking pluses editing. Mm-hmm. The editing is so fast in yeah. this movie. It's kind of surprising, actually, how fast it moves. Um, some of the some of the choices actually felt to me like um, like El Mariachi or something. You know, just mm-hmm. kind of an independent filmmaking sort of idea. Like, let's yeah. just cut to the chase. Like. Here's a quick shot of putting a key on a hook, yeah. just real fast. A quick shot of like a, a door closing, um, and it it feels it, you know if you filmmaking 101 for a horror film, you think like slow moving camera pushing yeah. into a room, and mm-hmm. there's some of that too. But it really feels like a static movie in the sense that you're seeing a lot of composed shots that are then yeah. cut together very quickly. Well, but no, uh, so go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say the uh, and uh, I'm going to give another prop to the filmmaker if IMDb trivia is to be believed. <laughs> oh, um, no. uh, but uh, it said in that that she uh, was so intentional about specifically like we've praised several times uh, the uh, Noah Wiseman's performance. Um, she said that it was very important to her, given the theme of the film, that I love the way she said it. She said, I will not destroy a childhood to make this film. She hmm. she conversed with him a lot about the themes. And you can notice, I, I knew that going into my second viewing. And there are many shots of the more visceral sort of ferocious variety where 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 things are really getting Backseat. terrifying for, for, for her, you know, for the child, mm-hmm. um, that he's not visible in the frame. And I'm not actually even certain he was on set during some of uh, the more. I'll just go ahead and spoil that there's a uh, a component where the mother actually begins to, for reasons I'm sure we'll get into in a little while, become the threat yes. to him. And so, for some of her more nasty, vicious tirades, I'm not even sure if he was on set in the moment. I was noticing this in the second viewing last night um, that the scene where she's in bed and he wakes her up and she says, I just want to sleep. And he says, I'm hungry. And she turns to him and says, didn't just eat Tyler. What did she say? Can uh, you say that on this podcast? Uh, you can censor yourself. It's fine. But the it's S word. She yeah. says you can eat the S word. Yeah. And uh, it cuts to her for that line. So it's yeah. his POV. And I thought <clears throat> I, I hadn't read that IMDb, IMDb mm. trivia, but um, I assumed that that must be, the case that he probably wasn't even there when she said that because it would be I think about this total kind of tangent but I I hate the movie Bad Santa for one mm-hmm. moment and it's the scene where uh, Billy Bob Thornton is sitting eating lunch or something in a cafeteria mm-hmm. and he's still dressed in a Santa costume and the mom brings the kid up nah. to say hi to Santa and he's like super pissed off and so he yells at the kid and the kid is standing right next yeah. to him really being frightened yeah. actually uh, frightened yeah. and like yeah. ah. and nobody told this kid to be frightened you could tell he's actually frightened by billy bob thornton uh, and yeah. all that intensity that that implies um and that made me hate the whole movie it's like why why would the filmmaker do that to that poor kid mm-hmm. and so i really appreciate hearing that that's the case if that is yeah. indeed the case uh, yeah and i i mean i you, the, the thing is i i believe the trivia even if it's not explicitly true because you can see in the filmmaking the care that's taken yes. with how everything is laid out and uh again just it feels so vital to to me as a viewer. So must have felt vital to the filmmaker that that the as close as possible you accurately portray the the progression of loss becoming loss and grief becoming this monstrous thing which consumes your house first and then you yourself. Like like that's the thing is is she's not just suffering the loss of her husband she's progressively suffering the loss of her 
job, the loss mm-hmm. of her motherhood. She's and and then by the end of the film, she's suffering the loss of of herself yeah. and who she even is as as a as an individual person. Um, and 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 I love because I think the metaphor works so powerfully that that it's like okay, this thing is in her, and there the film. In very subtle ways, um, and in some ways that aren't so subtle, but it constantly has this dividing line of there is this thing in her that is that is not her, mm-hmm. but yet it is a part of her, yeah. and and it, it it is an extension of what is happening, even in the rhyme inside the book. Take yeah. a look at what's underneath. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it's constantly hammered in that it's like this is an extension of what you yourself are experiencing but once it once it comes to full embodiment it is now not you like that the it's probably my favorite moment of the film that moment when uh, she has gone completely nuts and threatening and violent and he has managed to get her tied down in the basement yeah. mm-hmm. so she's tied down in the basement and he's sitting there and and he says to her um Sorry, I did not expect to get a little emotional about that. But he says to her, the Babadook won't let you love me. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's his specific line. Like, yeah. the Babadook won't let you love me. And my goodness, I could, like, that line alone, I could have to pause the film and have to walk away. Like, that, such a powerful idea of this is not you. Yeah. yeah. Like, what you're experiencing, what you're expressing this and and he responds, you know, after making that observation, the Babadook won't let you love me, and then he says, "But I love you, mommy." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm so not leaving. Yes, and he responds to to all of that terror and violence and threat with such an overwhelming display of of just love and affection and acceptance. It is powerful mm-hmm. like just like i said even sitting here talking about it like i'm getting a little emotional and kind of kind of impassioned even remembering that scene and the effect it had on me it's it's, it's exceptional and i'm reluctant to to you know given the 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 emotion running high right now um <laughs> i apologize read <laughs> we are not to the themes yet no it's uh no it's perfectly fine um that's the that's the thing is that like y- you mentioned the progression. It is key. It is vital. It is maybe the most important choice of the film. We need to get, we need to arrive organically at a place where we believe that, yes, we know that like there's this Babadook thing that's, that's like involved, but we need to get to a point where I can believe that she wants to kill her kid. Mm-hmm. And that means every step of the way, because if it doesn't, then it's just like, Oh, it's the Babadook. You know, uh, once they take care of that, it's fine. You know, or it's just going to be way too jarring. Like, so every, so we need to, we need to see the kid being annoying so that we feel her pain and just her suffocation, her exhaustion, and then little, you know, snapping at the kid. And it's like, okay, there's a little hint of it right there. And then just more and more and more, uh, until it finally, where you could you could have this you could remove any spiritual or ghostly or what or supernatural element at all like you could remove it completely and the story as far as emotional stuff it would still stand as a as a drama thriller mm-hmm. um and i feel like that speaks to Jennifer Kent's understanding as a writer just how important it is 
that we are with these characters, even if we don't want to be, we're yeah. with these characters every step of the way. Um, and we need to see as many steps as possible mm-hmm. because there are some pretty big jumps that happen. And, and I see them all the time in, in action movies, superhero movies, horror movies, where somebody just, they do something because the script needs them to, yeah. and they're, they're very obliging. Mm-hmm. And that's basically it. Uh, I never got the sense here. It always felt like a completely organic, yes, it did. Uh, an organic place that the character arrived at, not that the writer said, you need to be here now. And so, yeah, it's so the the film it works on every level. It's a yeah. one like the I'll say this also the cement, uh, the the symmetry of the script is something that I kind of got a sense of as I was watching the first time, and then once I saw once again once I saw the film was able to look back on it in its entirety. I really appreciated the symmetry of the script. The second time in watching it, when you know how things are going to pay off, it just. It's so amazing. Like yeah. the idea of the Babadook saying in the book saying like, you know, let me in. And then she's banging later on. She's mm-hmm. banging on the door, screaming, let me in. And she's like, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, yeah. Um, and then just the oh, the poor kid. And this is where I might actually get a little bit emotional. But like that poor kid's shrine to his father. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. And the fact that he sets his clothes up and those clothes, boy, don't they look a little bit like the Babadook? Yep. Yeah. Like such a, mm-hmm. like what an amazing choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it doesn't become, it's not, they don't underline it. It's just there it's if you're there. paying attention and the film has, has rewarded you for paying attention up to that point because yeah. you'll, you're, you, because it creates such a sense of paranoia in her that you're always looking for where something's going to show up yeah. or, is my kid going to cause more trouble? <laughs> I got to yeah. keep, I got to remain ever vigilant. Mm-hmm. Um, choices like that. Some of them are dialogue. Some of them are purely visual, uh, but whatever it is, they're all of a piece. Um, sometimes the filmmaking is, has the quick cutting that you're talking about, Robert. Sometimes it's very patient and it never feels jarring to go from one to the other no. because it takes its cues from the emotional, uh, the emotional aspect of the character in that particular moment. And I just like just thinking about it. So I've I've seen it twice, uh, second time a, f- a few months ago, and I immediately just want to, as tends to happen when we talk about like really great movies on this show. I own it on Blu-ray. I just want to throw it in the minute you guys leave and watch it and just mm-hmm. revel in just the assured filmmaking that is going on and the sensitive filmmaking that's going on, mm-hmm. you know, which speaks to what you were talking about, like being sensitive to the actors, maybe because for a number of reasons, one is, you know, she's a human being, but also maybe understanding, like I need to take care of this kid in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, because maybe that will get him to a, that'll get him to trust me and then do some pretty tough emotional things. But also, I want to try to create a sense of like motherliness with me and the kid that maybe he won't have with the the lead actress. Yeah. So that he feels a little bit suspicious of that. I don't know. Um, but again, it just speaks to just the. It sounds wrong to say professionalism, but just it's like she as a filmmaker. And again, I know she's done stuff previous, but it's almost like she arrived fully formed. Like this movie is kind of a minor miracle. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. That it was made as wonderfully as it was. 
Yeah. Um, and can I also say just like, uh, I, I think we've both, uh, or all of us have mentioned the, like, uh, how, how brave it is. Um, uh, in what you were just talking about, I was remembering certain lines of dialogue that I'm thinking it takes so much guts to put those lines of dialogue in, in your script. I'm thinking particularly of when the, the little boy says to this stranger to him that, mm-hmm. that works with his mother, like she won't even let me have a dad. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh man, like that, what a brutal statement, you know, something that's completely out of her control. But then you go, you move further into the story and then you get the, uh, the aunts, you know, the, I guess it's a cousin, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, uh, the aunt's daughter who's sitting there like, you know, it, literally digging into this child of your dad left because he didn't yeah. want to be around you. And it's like, Oh my God, I cannot believe that they're, they're talking about somebody who passed away through an accident. And these are the kind of things that, you know, the spit that's being hurled at this kid. Yeah. And then of course we get to her most brutal, vicious attack of him when, when she's in the full throes of this. And she finally verbalizes like, you don't know how many times I've wished yeah. it was you that mm-hmm. died and not him. Yeah. And when I see that, obviously, it's heartbreaking and it's a bit terrifying. But I see that and and retrospectively, I think, what a brave filmmaker. And, and again, sensitive. Yeah. But to be able to just say, you know what? Let's, let's go into what this really looks like. Yeah. Let's go into the place where these thoughts happen and, and give them voice and then – Say something we haven't talked about the ending yet, and I won't now, but because uh, I'm sure we'll get to it. But now let's say something about how to deal with all of that. Um, and that goes to the pro- once again that goes to the progression. Like we hear some, we hear the his cousin say it cruelly. Mm-hmm. We hear him say it as an accusation of his mother. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I'm sure in that moment we feel we're probably more on her side. Like I. Mm-hmm. It's not my fault that your dad died and I can't get a boyfriend. You know, it's not like I'm not trying to hurt you. You're not trying to hurt me. Like there's an element of like, oh, this kid just doesn't understand. And then she says it mm-hmm. and she says it with venom and poison. But it's also in that moment, there is a, a truth to it. Mm-hmm. Undoubtedly, I'm sure if anybody were in that situation, they might feel that it's just like. Hey, he and I always could have, we could have always had another kid. If we got in a car accident and I lost this kid, he and I can always make another one. I can't make another husband and father for this kid. So I'm completely alone. I think the bravery in that moment though, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that, that she says that she's definitely in the throes of, of like her emotion, Mm -hmm. but I don't think she's actually consumed by the Babadook at that point. So she's still saying it as herself. Well, I actually, and that depends on your interpretation of the, of the possession that happens because the moment the moment has happened in the film at that point where the Babadook in, a, in one of the most terrifying scenes of the movie has entered their bedroom and then mm-hmm. she sees it in the ceiling and it has gone right. into her throat. Yeah. Okay. I interpreted and it, that maybe there's another way to read it, but I had interpreted that as the moment when things begin to embody in her mm-hmm. the the uh, sort of more violent antagonism towards the child. Yeah. So anything that happens in the story from that moment Till you know, sort of the climactic resolution, mm-hmm. I interpret as Babadook's influence. Sure. Um, but there may be another way to read that. Well, but even so, I think we talked about earlier that the Babadook isn't necessarily what the evil is. Mm. It's like the Babadook is uh, the 
capacitor for uh, for uh, broadening or making more large the things that are already in you. Mm-hmm. In other words, the, the the pain and the grief and the all of those things tend to just become bigger and more evil seeming because it's gotten bigger because mm-hmm. the Babadook yeah. has allowed that. So it's still her saying it. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. It's still her sentiment mm-hmm. that she wishes that he yeah. had been dead instead of the husband. So it's really, you're right. It's extremely honest and hard to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's so my first time watching the movie, I went with a, with a friend. My second time without giving any specific names, uh, Jen and I were going to be watching it with this other couple and this other couple, they have a child, and that child was not part of the plan. And we remember when they first found out, and they were feeling tough. Mm-hmm. Like, they, this was not, they couldn't afford their kid. They just, like, it, this was going to change, you know, the career of the, of the mother, potentially. Um, and just, so Jen and I went over, and, and like, we're kind of sitting with them and just letting them feel what they were feeling and, and that sort of thing. And so we went, so we saw it with them and, and I told them ahead of time, like, Hey, one of the reasons I want to see this with you is because you have a very specific, and of course, you know, they, since they have a daughter that they love and is a delight and, you know, um, and they, you know, they, I specifically said, like, I have no experience in some of this, like the closest I have is the, you know, the, the kid, like, desperately wanting a father. But even then, like I lost my father when I was 20, not seven. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so it's like, I feel like this is going to have a different quality for a parent. Uh, even, and especially a parent who, who became a parent in circumstances that weren't ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, and they watched it and they, and they said like, uh, yeah, there are times when our kid is just, annoying the hell out of us and we just feel like not even so much like oh i wish i didn't have you because they were they're able to remember all the how much they love her but yeah but also just that feeling like this isn't this wasn't supposed to be this like Mm -hmm. we were planning like this was supposed to be maybe a few years from now when we were more ready yeah and now it's just this (laughs) and just like the the frustration like again like so much of you know, as as fanciful as the story is, and and as as heightened as the art direction is, and all that, like all of the emotionally, everything, every aspect of it, is rooted firmly in reality. It feels like it could be, you know, it could, these could be John Cassavetti's characters. You know, I was just thinking, it's like uh, if if you. Uh the first half of Kramer versus Kramer sure. passes by mm-hmm. and then suddenly the kid finds this book. It would be the same thing yeah. because it's like these characters are so yeah. well developed yeah. and the, the conflict kid eats is the so ice real. cream and then uh, and suddenly, tries to murder him. Exactly. Or uh, I was also thinking of uh, like Alice doesn't live here anymore. Which I've never seen actually. Oh really? You should see it. Yeah. It's really well done. And the kid is so believable in that movie. Um, so I'm thinking of like movies that have really well developed uh, parent kid relationships. Mm-hmm. And on like top Paper of that, Moon. Paper Moon. Well, I, I don't remember that very much, but it's not a realistic film, but it's wonderful. <laughs> but anyway, go on. I was making it. Oh joke. yeah, black and white movie set in the forties, made in the seventies. Uh, yes, got it. Um, but they they're believable, and on top of that, they're they're great actors, mm-hmm. and that's just like this movie. But introduce Mr. Babadook to Kramer versus Kramer, and you yeah. kind of get the same progression because they're so true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also like 
the the frightening thing well one of the things that i think really terrified me is cuz you know our son uh uh, was you know we we were we were trying to have a child. Mm-hmm. Um, we had unlocked the door and and uh, and so you know my son Sawyer came along, and even still like we have a strong family bond. Uh, you know we we adore our son. He you know he put the moon up in the in the sky, but there are moments, and it, it's it's a reality that not a lot of people talk about, mm-hmm. um, just because they don't want to give. A misguided impression and there's also a little bit of for myself there's a little bit of fear that like if i verbalize this what am i giving it power by verbalizing it but the (laughs) fact is um i have been startled you know i have never and i'm not just saying this i have never done anything that i would be ashamed for anybody to see to my son in terms of like you know acting out aggression or anything like that but i have been shocked at my capacity to grow angry with this person that i love so much and I think that, you know, that moment that we've already spoken about where he's begging for food, um, it's it, it's unreal. Like right now, uh, like we'll be taking a car ride or something like that. I'm still hungry. I'm still hungry. I'm hungry. You know, like that question or are we there yet or or just a persistent question. And then if you're in even an off frame of mind doesn't even have to be a bad frame of mind. If you're even in an off frame of mind, like all of it will suddenly have a face uh, and, and it will suddenly have like a voice and, and it's shocking sometimes my wife and I, I think do a better than average. I would even say really good job of confessing to each other when we have those kinds of moments yeah. where it's like, you know, I really wasn't fair to our son, like in this moment, you know, like I got upset at him when all he wanted was just for something to eat or he just wanted to, you know, to play or wanted a little bit of attention and I needed to get this thing done or I needed to, to accomplish this other thing. And I really wasn't fair to him. We do a good job of confessing that to each other. Um, uh, just naturally, like I need to get this out of my system because I feel bad that I did not treat our son well you know i i snapped at him when he just wanted another granola bar or something um so the reason i bring that up for this is that even even in the most ideal of circumstances and may there may be you know what that i'm just trying to be honest here there may be listeners out there who are like well you're a terrible parent (laughs) um and i i just i love my son Mm -hmm. and would do absolutely anything i could to keep him from harm and to make sure that he's whole and healthy and there are moments where he will not go to sleep or where he has destroyed something of value to me. You know what this film reminds me of? Um, not the movie, not e- any iteration of the movie, but the book, The Shining. Oh, okay. um, if you've read the novel, the novel has deep and rich themes of Jack Torrance's character dealing with, you know, like he, he got home one day and his son had destroyed a valuable book project that he was working on just ripped it to shreds Mm. for fun and he had been drinking and he yanked his son up just to get him out of the room and pulled his arm out of socket yeah and that moment haunts his family and haunts his marriage and haunts his his parenthood and everything and then those themes and a multitude of others are brought into the situation at the overlook and it's not a direct correlation but i think about uh, the Shining a lot when I think about some of the themes of the Babadook. I was thinking of it as a possible companion film, mm. but not the Kubrick version, but the uh, ABC miniseries, yeah, which with, is a lot closer to the book. Absolutely. Um, 
because the the Kubrick version is just like, I'm not interested in any of this stuff. We're not exploring anything. No. We're just going to be creepy. And it's, it's actually, I feel like, a big uh, oversight. Uh, mm-hmm. That's why I've never responded to his uh, his. I think shining. that the moment you described that's in the book was mentioned by Shelley Duvall in the scene where she's being interrogated by the, yes. the child mm-hmm. protective mm-hmm. services person. She's trying to light a cigarette. Mm-hmm. It's a very awkward scene. Yeah, and you, you're not thinking about what she's telling the person. You're thinking about how just kind of how odd mm-hmm. Shelley Duvall is. Yeah, so that, that that is a disservice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I recommend uh, anybody who loves reading like read The Shining. It's a terrifying book, but it is powerful and mm-hmm. and it has got and if you have only ever encountered particularly the Kubrick version but even the miniseries if you've only ever encountered that story through film you are missing out mm-hmm. on just so many great things about dealing with your own sort of grief and yeah. uh, grief for your own expectations and where you want to be in life and it's you would never suspect The Shining to be a redemption story mm-hmm. but when you read the book that is almost exactly what you walk away from. That wow. there is that there is a a kind of a redemption story at play in the midst of easily one of the five most terrifying books that the master of horror has ever written. Kubrick was never much about redemption. No. Yeah, not particularly. No. no. I mean, you know, at the end of Clockwork Orange, I like to think that's a, a redemption. A little. That's not true at all. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> Floating yeah. baby is sort of like mankind's redemption. I guess so. Or just like the cold, hard progression of uh, evolution, uh, which is it tends to be unforgiving and unmerciful. Um, So, yeah. uh, Yeah. What you're talking about, like with your with your son is a thing that, again, like I don't think you need. I was in I was intrigued to get the, the take of these parents that that Jen and I knew. But I feel like anybody who interacts with other people, especially people that you love tremendously, you know, uh, at our church, our um, our pastor talked about like marriage is the Mack truck that drives that drives over a rickety bridge, and only when it goes across do you understand. Oh wow, yeah, this is not structurally sound. Um, and in that same way, that like I, I've become so fam- so aware of my own flaws as a husband and as a person. Uh, not necessarily because my wife has said, here are your flaws as a husband as and as a person, uh, but just when you realize just how often you fail. Mm-hmm. And I feel like everybody – and for that reason, I think everybody can relate to this movie, whether it be frustration with your parents or your spouse or your kid or whatever. Uh, and then the reminder that you can't be enough for this person. Like mm-hmm. that's the other thing is I think Amelia – there's a lot, of, a lot going on inside her, but uh, on top of everything, she does want to be a good mother, and she's just perpetually aware. It's not that she's not, not that she's a, a, a bad mother necessarily, but the, like she's perpetually reminded of her own limitations, mm-hmm. you know, and like every time she's called into the principal's office, and then you know, uh, child services comes to visit, like it's getting to the point where now it's just like. I'm trying to do, I've tried everything I can try and it's not enough. I'm not enough. Like to look at this kid is not only to see the death of my husband, to not only see my own uh, loneliness, but it's also to see my own failure every single day. Yeah. And it's only a matter of time before you crack. Uh, uh, Maybe, Uh, but well, and I guess this can move us into some, some other aspects, which, you know, Robert, you were talking about the Babadook getting bigger, mm-hmm. you know, and 
that all of this is an aspect of her, but at some point the Babadook kind of takes over, um, but it only takes over when it gets big enough. And so, you know, I've heard a lot of a lot of interpretations that it's all completely in her head, or that she that it is an actual external force um, that that had nothing to do with her. Those people are incorrect. Um, <laughs> it's astounding to me. I was reading some Netflix comments, I guess, because I wanted to make myself angry. And that'll do it. That'll do it. And uh, and this thing, you're welcome to have whatever interpretation you can. But like, if you're going to give it one star, and then you talk about it, it's like eh, it's just about this ghost that lives in their house. <clears throat> what? Come on. Yeah. Like I'm not. <laughs> look, I'm not. I'm not dumb, but I'm also not super smart. And I feel like this is pretty clear. Like, look at all these other reviews. Like, look at, how about this? Look at those reviews before you write your dumb review right. about how it's just about, it's just another haunted house movie. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I have a strict. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me, but at the same time, uh, you know, I, I hang out with people like you uh, who elevate. Who get it. Who get it. <laughs> yeah, I have a strict policy where it comes to uh, my responses to those kind of things. I don't take any uh, I, I don't give any credibility to a response to the film, positive or negative, that indicates automatically you didn't really watch it. Like if you if you were to say like, oh, it's just a ghost thing. Like you were up and down from your couch getting yeah. drinks from the fridge for half of this movie. <laughs> you know, like if if you can't give me specifics. Um, about you don't have to know why you don't like it, sure. But if you can't give me specifics about what you didn't like, then I, I just don't. I mean, no offense, but I I don't give credibility to your to your criticism. Well, and that's the thing is you know, and this this is a conversation for another episode, but you know, uh, it might be maybe it's a little bit elitist of me, or at the very least, it's pretty uh, insular that I do hang out with other people that are like me that they'll watch a movie, whether it be The Babadook or Paddington, which up until recently was my favorite movie of this year. And no matter what movie they watch, every time they see something that makes them feel anything, positive or negative, they'll immediately say, okay, why? Why do I feel this way? And what did the filmmaker do in order to make me feel this way? And then am I supposed to feel this way? And just like, that's my natural instinct as it is your guys and probably a number of our listeners as well. And so I have, a, I need to, you know, I, I can call people dumb and I can say they're wrong they are wrong, but like, uh, <laughs> these are probably perfectly intelligent people who just don't go into movies the same way we do. Uh, anyway, that was a slight tangent. I just assume that those one stars are from people who missed a few things because they were dealing with a Babadook in their house. There you oh, go. So there Absolutely. You go. Absolutely. It is a little too close to home. I can yeah. get this one star. <laughs> exactly. I got to warn people away from this thing. Don't, don't watch um, this completely unrealistic movie. <laughs> uh, so, um, what was I saying? Oh yeah. So there's a lot of different interpretations of what the Babadook is, how it came about. Was it, is it a real thing? Was it an, how did it come into existence or is it not real and everything's completely inside Amelia's head? Uh, my answer, my personal answer to, the, to that is uh, yes, it's all that. Sure. Why not? I don't care. Um, it's not that I don't care, but it's just like, it's real enough. It's a thing she's fighting against. Right. And in that moment, it, it has just as much impact on their lives, whether it's in her head or not. And so one of the things that I learned in film school, and I'm so grateful for it, it, it came about during discussions of magical realism, uh, where I put a premium when I was younger on just realism, 
or more specifically, like I was fine with fantasy. I was fine with magic and stuff. As long as it's established that this is the world that we're living in in Lord of the Rings, it's uh, Harry Potter. Okay. It's a magical world. I got it. Uh, but if you have like real life and then someone does something strange, like it, it it threw me off. I viewed it as a flaw and I kind of just, my attitude for a while was like, pick a side. But then I came to just embrace it and just like, it's okay. It's a film. It can be whatever it wants to be. And this could be, I could try to make sense of it by saying, this is how somebody feels. It's, it's a manifestation of their emotion or whatever it is, or I can just let it be and just accept it. And that's kind of how I approach this. Um, a recent example is a uh, Birdman, I think, which magical realism tends to, uh, in the old days, and I guess even now, like was a big part of like uh, Mexican and Spanish cinema. And Birdman is directed, was written and directed by uh, uh, Alejandro uh, Inuritu. And so, so I just come, I just came to embrace it, and that's and and not, not. It's not that I don't ask questions. It, it's that I'm clearly not going to get a definitive answer from the film that this was a real thing or it was not a real thing. Um, or if it's a real thing that only comes about as a function of her, um, that doesn't matter. It, I'm not going to get an answer. So I'm just going to accept the reality that the film presents me. I don't know where the book came from. She was an illustrator. Maybe she drew it and didn't know it. Uh, that thing in the, the scene at the end in the basement certainly seems pretty cut and dry to me. But even so, uh, who's to say? And so uh, that to me is one of the it, – it's a fun conversation to have about the film, but it is to me not a vital one when talking about the theme. Yeah, I think this came up last – when we were talking about Whiplash. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a moment when uh, uh, Fletcher – that's the teacher, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's been too long since I thought about it. Um, you know, decides at some point to sabotage his own performance in order to get back at this kid. Mm -hmm. And the, the big question is, that's a stupid thing for him to do. Why would he do that? Yeah. And then on one hand, as a screenwriter, you want to go, well, that's kind of a weird choice or a bad choice. Why didn't he do this or this or this? And the other way to look at it is he did make that choice. He decided to sabotage. That's because that's what I'm looking at. That's mm -hmm. what he's doing. And I've I, lately, when I watch movies... Yes, even First Blood, you know, or Rambo, the, the <laughs> second one, or the Rambo Two. Um, I don't. I, I try not to watch it so much as a film student. Um, I try more. I mean, you can't not do that. But there's that other level that I try to jump to whenever I can, willfully, and just go. You know what? This is what that character is doing. Let's talk. Let's think about what that means, yeah. um, as opposed to why did why did they choose that? Why did the filmmakers choose that? And it's well, the same with this movie. It's like yeah. when the, the second time, especially when I uh, when they got she got to the point where she finds the bugs coming out of the back of the fridge and mm -hmm. the hole, and then it goes away when the social workers show up. It's like, uh, well, I guess that was all in her head. But why? And when did this? When did this start? Yeah. I dismissed it the second, the first time. I was like, kind of bothered by it. Like, well, well, what does this mean? Like, why? Why is it suddenly something that's just in her mind? Whereas up to this point, it feels like it's all real. The second time, I kind of let it all go, and I was like, but that's how it happened. That's how it's happening in the story. Yeah. And it almost doesn't matter if it did or didn't. It's just another building block toward her madness, yeah. whether it happened or not. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I can appreciate a movie more, I guess, thinking about it in terms of the character that I'm watching on the screen in front of me is doing this thing. What does that mean for the story? Let's just keep going with it. Just follow the logic. Well, and also, I feel like... Uh consistency and believability is not, it's no longer a thing that, that I value above all else, especially when it comes to character choice, because 
I, I, I've come to realize that if somebody were to watch the movie, let's say my life were a movie, and somebody were to watch how I act day to day, how often in, in just one day would people say, he wouldn't do that? I don't mm. understand. Like everything we saw before that, before this doesn't lead me to believe that he would do or say that thing. Like people are naturally contradictory. And, uh, and I, and I, I've developed a capacity to just sort of accept, um, accept that a character is doing something and However, then kind of go with it for the most part in good, in good movies. I'm able to do it all day long. Well, yeah, I was then there are the bad movies. If that, it's a movie that's well constructed in yeah. every other way, then you, it, you, it lends itself yeah. to believing that too, because you feel like it's a choice yeah. Yeah. by the filmmakers and the actors and all that stuff. And you'd be amazed how much an actor can, can make that make even, even if it's a bad script choice, they can make it work sure. and make you be okay with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, to me, it's some of the brilliant, like that's the brilliance of what actors can do. Like they, they take all these disparate things in the writing and the directing and they bring it all together. And if they do it right, you don't question it at all. It seems like the most complete thing in the world. Yeah. It's, it's astounding to me. They commit. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, so I feel like, uh, I feel like again, like it's such a dense movie. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to pass over anything. Like, mm-hmm. uh, is there anything I do want to briefly talk about how awesome that book is and how for a while, I think they sold out for a while. You could buy it for 80 bucks. Really? Like, wow. But I that's the thing, want like, that in my house. But it was, you know, it was that nice like uh, canvas cover yeah. with the pop-up like, and it was that big. Um, and they, they were somewhat expensive to make and they had a limited supply. I think purchasing that and putting in your, putting it in your book collection misses the point of the movie entirely. (laughs) I disagree. I feel like I'm going to conquer you book. Um, I could burn you at any time. At any time. (laughs) And then it shows up Don't get out of control. Oh! Um, So uh, the book is wonderful. I do think the design of the Babadook is particularly great. I think it's almost iconic. I feel like it'd be neat if there was a, like if they, let's say they made a sequel to it, which I think they could. Um, I hope they don't. I don't think, yeah, I don't think they should. Um, and I hope they don't because then I like this being her story. And if the, if the Babadook, you know, with the hat and the coat and the fingers and stuff like, and the big smile, if it showed up in somebody else's story, then she's like, oh, okay, so it's not her, it's not about her. It's this other thing, yeah. and then you could actually then make an argument that it's like this demon that shows up anytime somebody is discon- is like not content or or bitter or frustrated, and it will exacerbate that. You can make like that be that make for an interesting film series. Um, that it doesn't it capitalizes on the evil inside you rather than actually uh, force its own evil on you. I feel like that would be, if they were going to do like a sequel to the Babadook, I feel like that's, that would be accept. That's the only way it would be acceptable to me. Um, I think if it went straight to uh, skipped over the four or five sequels and went straight to the Wes Craven's new nightmare angle. Sure. Just like the film, like Janet, what's her name is making the sequel. Uh, Jennifer Kent is there. Yeah. Well, and Jennifer Jennifer Kent Kent is, is like, trying to write this nice comedy but her oh, her horrible oh. son just keeps getting in oh, the way oh no <laughs> um, oh. so uh, so yeah were there any other elements of the film from an artistic standpoint and I think obviously a lot of what we've talked about we've brought in certain thematic elements as well but uh, we'll dive a bit you know delve a bit more into them in a moment but um, is there anything artistically that that 
jumped out at you in the film that you really felt like commenting on? Well, I don't even need to make a long comment. We've already talked about the aesthetic of the film, the shadows, the, mm-hmm. you know, you talked about how gray the house is. Um, shadows, it, it frustrates me sometimes when, when people say that like a city is a character in, in right. a, a film or, or something like that, this disembodied thing is a character. But um, I think in this case, it might apply because the Babadook is a shadowy figure Um, so the use of shadow and the 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 how the shadows continue to build i think is a really powerful and effective aesthetic through the film um and really that's all i had to say about it but i just wanted to mention that it's like i i love how um the film starts even though it is somewhat colorless rather bright Mm -hmm. and as things get nastier it gets steadily darker and darker and darker. And then, um, I'm sure we'll be talking about it, and then for the final few moments, right back to, to, to brightness. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and that's with intention. Yeah. Uh, and so I just really responded a great deal to that. I noticed it, but it didn't, it didn't take me out of my enjoyment of it. I just noticed it and, and just sort of registered on an, on a, an unconscious level. Um, uh, I'll actually use that to, to take us into a more uh, overt discussion of theme um, because yes that you're you're absolutely right it starts with you know a fair amount of color but even then like compared to the end I feel like not nearly as much as like it still feels a little bit muted to me and then goes to almost complete like Batman Returns level black and white uh, where yes it's not actually black and white but it might as it might as well be. Um, and just this idea, you know, one of the things that's conveyed in that is the idea of when I think of color, I think of life and I think of vibrance and slowly but surely that's being sucked away from this woman mm-hmm. and it's just, and everything is black and white. And if you want to look at things from a moral standpoint or an emotional standpoint, you know, uh, we live in a, we live in a world of, there's a lot of grays and a lot of like the more colors and the more hues you have, the, the, the more perspective you have, you have a better idea of what the world looks like. But when you remove all that, then you have a world of black and white where everything is either good or bad, positive or negative. It's either my son or my husband. And I made my choice, which one I want. And so like, whatever nuance and and understanding like she understands well i'm frustrated with my kid but i still love him like and i can now and i can hold both of those at the same time and then over the course of the film is among other things a complete loss of perspective and all she can see is how much she hates her son Mm -hmm. and whatever love she has for him is gone she doesn't feel that at all she doesn't see it at all because uh she now lives in a black and white world which i do think you know, this film is about a, m- a number of things, bitterness, resentment, uh, grief, but even that, like the grief, grief is not a bad thing. There's nothing no. wrong with grief. If you let yourself grieve mm-hmm. and if you allow it to run its course and then understanding that it's never going to go away, which speaks to that last uh, scene, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but if you don't grieve and if you start assigning blame to things, then that grief will quickly turn to, it goes from grief to a sense of loss. Now I know that they're, they're the same thing essentially, or at least they start that way, but then to replace grief, which is a healthy reaction to loss with only the fact of your loss, 
then you're starting to define how you're feeling and you're starting to define your life by what you don't have as opposed to what you do. And that is definitely what she is doing. And so she's not letting herself grieve. There's a line in here where she says in regards to her, her husband, I've moved on. I don't mention him. I don't talk about him. Mm-hmm. But then the, and in the same way she doesn't, this is it. I didn't realize this until at the end of the film that they don't immediately call attention to the fact that Samuel's birthday is her husband's death day. Not mm. I, it's, it's a weird thing to say, but like, um, I didn't immediately realize that. I only saw that like, oh, they don't celebrate his birthday. I was like, that's weird. I wonder why that is. Maybe she can't afford presents. I don't know. And then it becomes clear. It's like, oh my gosh, like she refuses to acknowledge, like, I can't think of a better uh, visualization of that mm-hmm. than I refuse to let you be happy and I refuse to be happy on the day you were born because of the thing I lost that day. Yeah. Even seven years later. And, and eventually the grief, grief turns to a sense of loss. The loss turns to resentment. And then I think the resentment turns to bitterness. And once you get to bitterness and quickly rage and frustration, like I think, I think a bitter person and maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm speaking a little too loftily, but like, I feel like a bitter person is somebody who has lost a certain degree of perspective, uh, in life. I don't know. What do you guys think about what I've been saying so far? Cause I've been getting, uh, I'm trying to read your faces and I can't, <laughs> well, uh, re, uh, you know, Robert is very impish and I can never read what he's <laughs> thinking anyway. <laughs> I'm always kind of smiling. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just like, it's, it's mild uh, mocking. It's off putting always. Well, I think, uh, I don't, I'm not dropping this name like flippantly, but like I, uh, something that Maya Angelou said once in a, in a TV interview that I saw, uh, she talked about anger and, and I, I, I reflect on this so frequently. She said, you'd have to be a, a stone to not be angry sometimes, but you must never, never grow bitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that bitterness is is a kind of poison, which is why I think the visualization of the Babadook as as like entering her yeah. and coming in as as sort of this this venomous thing is is a very effective visual. Mm-hmm. Um, because I I do I, I agree with what you're saying that you know bitterness can can be consumptive and it can flavor literally like if I'm feeling particularly bitter about something um, it flavors everything it literally takes every joyful positive interaction and stains it and and it adds this component of uh, to where now I just despise it and I and I want it to I want it to be gone and mm-hmm. I, and I want it to be not even just gone like leave me alone like sometimes you get these feelings of like there was there was a, a particular um, friendship that I had that uh, for reasons not worth going into was creating a, co- a lot of conflict in my life and that that Reed is it me. No, it's not you, Okay. It's Robert. I, you know uh, what? I That was my second choice. <laughs> Process of elimination. That's always me. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, these, these conflicts were, were getting to a point to where I, I even said to my wife one time, I like, like, now my feelings about this person are almost exclusively negative. Like, hmm. the, the way that I feel about this person, like, I just want this person out of my life. Like, I just don't want to interact with them anymore. I don't want to see them. I don't want to think about them. And, you know, that was just me being very vulnerable and honest. But but there was a lot of, like, 
verbal spit coming out of my mouth about this human being mm-hmm. and uh, some things that I won't even reverbalize here about like just everything was flavored with this nastiness. And um, one of the things that I think is so, you know, getting back to that moment that I mentioned earlier where he says, you know, the Babadook won't let you love me. And he says, you've got to get it out. Yeah. Like you've got to get it out. And, and the visual that they use is a vomiting. Yeah. And I think about that in a very, you know, like tangible perspective. Like when you vomit, your entire body is unrestrained. Yeah. Like there, there's no tactful vomiting. Like it is, <laughs> it is, it is this, you know, propulsive thing that it's is hard just, to remain a gentleman while vomiting. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. Uh, you know, like I'm you're going to make pop- sure my monocle is still in place. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, excuse me. You know, um, Both and, eyes straight. <laughs> and I think that, when you're thinking about your own sort of the things that have that have poisoned you, whether it be bitterness or 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 you know, like I think that grief is inherently natural and healthy. Mm-hmm. But I think depending on, and this is directly related to the theme of the Babadook, that depending on how you respond to that grief, it determines whether or not it's going to be a healthy thing for you because there are just as many people who have healthy coping mechanisms for grief as unhealthy coping mechanisms for grief and and when you get to like this notion of of vomiting it out um i think that sometimes it reaches a point where you genuinely have to just let it expel just just let it completely fly loose um you know like we were we were talking about sometimes we we don't want to think, especially as Christians, we don't want to think that we have overtly negative thoughts. We don't want to acknowledge or admit that we have thoughts that, if they were verbalized, might make people think we weren't really Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is that in the right context, in safe space, whether that be a moment of prayer that's private or among very close trusted friends, you can just just vomit those things forth like just just expel them and once they're out if it's done prayerfully and if it's done you know with a heart towards healing then there's a lot of freedom that can come from just like you know if we're going to call these things our own personal babadooks like getting them out of our system and mm-hmm. once we've vomited them up which is a very violent propulsive act mm-hmm. then there's there is a, a a freedom and a relief that that can come, and I think a lot of times we Christians deny ourselves that because we don't want to to even acknowledge the negative yeah, or right. the, or the passing thoughts that are that are somewhat nasty. But I can relate to that uh, in a very. I, we talked about this on my testimony episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, I spent my entire uh, childhood, as soon as I could put kind of words on it, my childhood and my teenhood teenage years, um, hating my dad mm. and pretending to love him, but hating him because of the things that he had done in our family and wishing death on him all the way into my like mid twenties. Uh, <clears throat> and you know, I, that sort of flipped, uh, of course, after he was out of the house and then I moved into adulthood and I was like kind of embracing life in different ways and hopefully learning and growing. But it was, there was still this, this kind of free-floating hate for him. And I still imagine that when I would hear my sister talk about him or when I would just think about our our childhoods, I wish that he was dead. But by the time he actually died of 
not natural causes, but he died not by my hand. Um, well, hang on. Now. <laughs> uh, he, uh, I, I was approaching a point where I, I felt like I was uh, getting to know him better hmm. as not just this sort of black and white, you know, sort of figure in my mind, but as a real human being who had his own past and his own problems, and that led to this and that. Um, and that anger shifted to God. Mm-hmm. And I was, while you were talking about bitterness, I was like, I wanted to ask you, like, what, what do you mean by bitterness? What's your definition of bitterness? Because I don't know if I've ever felt bitterness. Mm-hmm. That was stupid because, of course, I felt bitterness. <laughs> I felt bitterness at my dad, and it shifted completely to God. And when you talked about, because I felt like God had taken away this opportunity by taking my dad before I mm-hmm. could actually get to know him better um, in this new scenario of him opening up. Um, and it wasn't until I could vomit it all up in counseling Mm-hmm. After the testimony episode, I found a counselor, and we went six months of me going every week and talking about this stuff. And it, it's not the violent, propulsive thing that you are describing, but in a way, it was. It was emotionally violent uh, in, in the things that I was saying about him. Mm-hmm. You know, decades later, yeah. um, and he was dead. I mean, I'm literally kicking a dead horse. <laughs> and uh, you know, it, like, get over it, Robert. He's dead. There's nothing you can do about it. But there were still things inside of me that were babadookish, I don't know how you say that, but um, that needed to be dealt with. And it's only through the propulsion from your body, the vomiting out, letting it lie there on the floor, and then walking away from it, that those things can actually be taken care of and become the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, my, whatever bitterness that I feel tends to, as I've talked about it on the show many times, um, it, it is paired so often with envy um i look because you know the the people that i've lost i can't really blame anybody for that and so um and i i don't have a situation where my my parents like were abusive or anything like that so it's not that what it tends to be is i look at people who have the things i don't have and i get very envious of them and then that turns to resentment and then that turns to bitterness and before you know it um I find myself uh, angry. Uh, I'll use since I've talked about my dad already. I'll go ahead and use that as an example. There are several others, but I'll use that one. Um, and I've talked about it on the podcast as well. Father's Day is tough uh, for reasons that, like you know, it's one thing. It's like, oh, Father's Day. Yeah, I'm, I'm mourning the lo- the, lock- the 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 loss of my father. Like that's that's a natural thing. But when you start to get angry at other people for still having a father, right. yeah. mm-hmm. that's when I think that's when it's like, oh, that's the bitterness taking over. That's just, it's like, they have no, they didn't have any choice about their father being alive any more than I had about mine being dead. Um, but now I'm mad at them. And I do think that like, I'm mad at them because they have a face. <laughs> but in actuality, I'm probably mad at God in that moment. I'm mad at life. Um, and one thing that I wrote down here uh, as we were talking is uh grief uh and and just the frustration with life and how that can often lead to bitterness and i think a lot of it could just be summed up maybe too simplistically but it could be summed up as just our response to sin in general um where there are a number of ways and by sin i don't necessarily mean like a specific act that a person has done but just the concept of sin and the concept of a very broken world um you know and so you can be better at other people for being people um you can be better at god for not giving you the things or taking away the things that you like and that you feel like you need um 
and and I and I do feel like as as Christians we maybe more than most and I I'm reluctant to say that but I feel like we do have I feel like we we've been given the tools to have a, an understanding and have a, a great deal of perspective about sin and about grief and about this world where we can we can look at the world and say like yeah it's horrible <laughs> like it's terrible things happen all the time uh not merely in my life but other people as well and it's just like this is a this is an awful place to live and yes we have our we have happiness here and there um but it, and it's it's awful but it's not irredeemable and God is in the process of of redeeming it, and in fact, you know, in on an individual basis has done that. But also, if you look at Revelations uh, at Alpha Omega Con, I did purchase a uh, somebody who was selling a comic book called the Book of Revelation. Somebody had illustrated hmm. the Book of Revelation. Uh, Jen saw it on my nightstand and said, "Why would you buy something so terrifying?" <laughs> now I can understand why she would say that, but of course, if you're a Christian, you read that, and while some of the imagery is in fact very drastic. Um, it is the story of our of God's eventual redemption of the world and of His eventual victory and 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 our association with that. It should be, it is it is a, a thing of triumph and and love and all that sort of thing. And so, so I feel like everybody is prone to bitterness. Uh, being a Christian doesn't mean that you are exempt from any emotion. Mm-hmm. negative or positive that uh, people will feel. But I do feel like we, we do have the ability to combat that because we are able to see things for what they are. Um, before we started recording, I was talking about this in regards to something else, but it's how you can, it's how you can look at David as a man after God's own heart and then see the hor- uh, so many of the horrible things that he does yeah. and see that both are possible at the same time. Uh, it blows my mind. Yeah. And so uh, it sounds like I'm wrapping up. I'm not, we haven't even gotten to the companion film. Um, so, and I think we'll, I think we'll move on to that as well. Uh, unless you guys had anything, uh, you wanted to follow up with. I had, uh, two very brief things. The, uh, uh, the first thing I might not even get to the second thing, but the, the first thing, uh, is just, uh, you, you talked about, uh, combating it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's explicitly been stated. I know you referenced it a little bit earlier. Um, but, uh, that that moment is so powerful to me after she vomits it up mm-hmm. then uh, in a in a kind of a horrific sort of twist then they get out of the basement that's the moment that you would think it's end mm-hmm. yeah. and and then he looks up at her and says you can't get rid of the babadook yeah and then this disembodied thing begins to attack and now it's no longer using her to attack him it's yeah. just attacking him directly and she can see it and oh man, I could go on for an hour, but I won't about the about how powerful the moment it is when, like you said earlier, she confronts her own mm-hmm. grief. She yeah. confronts this thing, and I love the language she uses. You are a trespasser mm-hmm. in my home, yeah. you know. And if you touch my son again, I will I will kill you. Mm-hmm. She uses harsher language than that, but you know that that she confronts it. And I wish so badly that you know it's. It's, we've talked about how you mentioned that it is, you know, is it sourced from her? Is it an external thing? Is it a convergence of the two? What is it? Regardless of where it started, there's a powerful thing to be said about how it can end. Mm -hmm. And that is possibly to treat it like an outsider. Maybe it didn't start as an outsider, (laughs) but, but how badly I would love, like when I'm, 
you know, when I'm unfair to my son, when I'm unfair to my wife, when I'm unfair to myself, to be able to compartmentalize those voices in my head, those lying, nasty voices, compartmentalize them, get them out of my head and say, you are, you are a trespasser in my life. This is not who I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Christian would explicitly say, this is not who I am in Christ. This is not who I was designed to be. Even the non-religious person might say, this, this is not the sum of who I am. Mm-hmm. You, you don't get to define me. You are a trespasser in my home, and I want you out. And that, that's such a powerful, powerful moment to me when she just gathers up all of her courage. And that does lead to, you know, I'll briefly mention the second thing. She has a next-door neighbor mm-hmm. um, who... I, there's there might be something to be said about the fact that she sees roaches and the next door neighbor is named Mrs. Roach, but no, I don't know what it is. That too. <laughs> uh, but uh, but what I love about the next door neighbor is the next door neighbor is such a frail person and yet so strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she has Parkinson's and can't even take out her own garbage. Yet she is easily the one of the not necessarily strong in terms of dramatically, but as a whole person, like come to accept herself and her own frailty, you know, sort of a, a, an anchor in the film. They even, the son even calls her, yeah. calls this woman with Parkinson's who can't take out her own garbage. Can you please come stay the night? Because I'm scared. Like yeah. there's a strength mm-hmm. to be had in that. And I think part of that is because that, you know, it's just touched on subtly, but part of that is when the son asks about Parkinson's, She's open about it, yep. yeah. and she's accepting of it. Like I have Parkinson, he wanted to talk about it, so we talked about it. Like I have this, I have this condition that makes me shake, and and I just thought, what a what it, I'll use the word beauty. What a beauty there is in the fact that this noticeably frail person has come to terms yeah. with her own frailty, and it actually is now an added strength. Uh, arguably, yeah. the strongest individual character in the film until the end. Um, so anyway, that's yeah. the I, I think that's as much as I wanted to squeeze in. Yeah, and and how that plays into the final scene is something that I will actually, I'm planning on saving uh, until the end of the uh, the episode. Um, So, moving into the companion film and how that relates, uh, the companion film is Forbidden Planet, which admittedly I have not seen in a number of years. I wanted to try and see it in preparation for this. I did not get a chance. I love that Um, movie. It's great. Yeah, I've only seen it the once, and I saw it in college. I have a surprising memory for it, because it was very... I saw it in my... <laughs> All right. Science Fiction Visions of a Post-Human Future was the name of my class. Or, in the course catalog, Sci-Fi Viz of a Post-Hum Fut. <laughs> um, so, lots... Of, which, obviously, when you read that, it's like, yes, I absolutely know what that stands for. It's like, I see sci-fi, I got it. Can you say it one more time? Sci-fi viz of a post-humfut. Nice. I need to make sure to hit that T at the end. Yes. Okay. Um, so, uh, and the thing is, like, you know, you, I feel like we're so trained, partially by, in my case, by Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand. We're so trained to look at uh, sci-fi films of the fifties mm-hmm. that are not the day the Earth stood still, um, and just see them for how cheesy they are. You know, uh, we see Robbie the robot. Uh, wandering around in Forbidden Planet, and we just are, are like, this is silly. Um, Forbidden Planet is great. It's oh, fantastic. It's such a wonderful movie. <laughs> a, oh, and it holds up so well. Like, does, if there's yeah. any listener out there who is a fan uh, of of sci-fi from the 50s and 60s and has not seen Forbidden Planet, like, it is so worth your time. Quintessential. It's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And, uh, 
because I have taken the time to memorize the lyrics to the song, uh, late night double feature picture show from the Rocky horror picture show or the Rocky horror show. Uh, it's a wonderful it, for movie buffs. Go and listen to that song from the Rocky horror picture show. It's the opening song hmm. in which they just list off all this sci-fi and horror movie stuff. Um, and one of the, th- and in the chorus, uh, Anne Francis stars in forbidden planet is, nice. is, uh, one of the lyrics. And so, uh, I've been listening to that song a lot. And by the way, listening to it, uh, I tweeted this at the time, uh, listening to it on earbuds while walking around comic-con is a special experience <laughs> because you're just seeing all these costumes. There's like, it's like, it's like they're acting out what I'm hearing. Not specifically, nobody's Claude Rains in the invisible man, but, um, so for so Forbidden Planet is, has been on my mind not merely because I, I picked it uh, as a the companion film but also it's just a a film that uh, has resonated with me for years. I have not seen it in I'm going to say eleven years, hmm. and I still have the the big thing I remember from it is Monsters of the Id. Yes. That's the one thing mm-hmm. I the the line I remember more than anything. Um, but I I have a I have a very specific memory of the visualization of the monster from the id and the, so there's a character named uh, Dr. Morbius, which is a wonderful name. Great. Great. Um, 50 sci-fi name. Oh yeah. Oh, no question. And, uh, and one, the thing that got me more than anything is he, the blind spot, uh, that he has because, so we don't need to go too much into it. Listeners, just go see Forbidden Planet. Well, I don't want to spoil anything for you. Probably it's likely you haven't seen it. Go see Forbidden Planet. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. But one of the big parts of the film is that there is this, there are these creatures that are created uh, as a function of a person's thought. Like they can create things with their brain because of some alien technology. But what they don't anticipate, and by the way, the movie and book Sphere I think was influenced by Forbidden Planet. No, I agree. What they don't realize is that, uh, yeah, there's what your mind, it's what you consciously create, but then there's the stuff in the background, the stuff you're not aware of, the things you feel but don't know you're feeling, the things you believe but don't know you believe. And uh, as it turns out, that can also be projected. And that is where a lot of the, this is not a horror movie it's a sci-fi movie but what what whatever thrills and scares there are come from that the idea that there are these things that you don't mean to create but you are creating nonetheless and really the only way to uh combat them not the only way but like uh, a way to combat them is to be aware uh, of yourself and aware of the things underneath your your psyche that you might be dealing with or not dealing with um and the thing that got me was just that like dr morbius he knows this is a thing that exists he sees that other people can create these monsters from the id uh but he doesn't think that he does it right and that's amazing to me and what i like is that the character's brilliant Mm -hmm. but he never makes that he never connects those dots right always Um, the smartest guy in the room and yet the simplest thing. Yeah. And it's, and it just speaks to that idea of like his biggest blind spot is himself, which is probably true of most people. Um, but he has a couple of lines that I love. Um, one, uh, one has a lot of exclamation points. Guilty, guilty. My evil self is at that door and I have no power to stop it. Um, 
And then another one, which actually plays very well into a uh, Bible verse that I have written here. Always in my mind, I seem to feel the creature is lurking somewhere close at hand, sly and irresistible, and only waiting to be reinvoked for murder. It's a great line. It's a great line. Man, that, that, that movie's full of great lines. Especially yeah. Walter Pigeon's voice. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, sonorous voice. That, um, whole, that whole script... I mean, we, we don't have to go too deep into it, but that whole script is just great. It's yeah. it's visually stunning. The script is fantastic. It's such a, a excellent, excellent movie. And Robert, you made the observation that the director is Fred M. Wilcox, who went on to direct a number of movies, but just this is the one that he is known for, yeah. if he's known at all. Like I don't recall knowing anything else that he had done. Yeah. and so, when, when I saw the list on IMDb, I was like, hmm, okay. Yeah, I don't either. But you know what? Sometimes all you need is one. Well, the movie didn't do well. Did it not? It did not do well. Yeah, it was one. What was so interesting about it is that it did not make a lot of money, mm-hmm. but everybody who saw it, a fan or critic, loved it, mm-hmm. raved over it. In fact, uh, responses to screenings of it were so overwhelmingly positive that they didn't even replace a musical score. They just they had dubbed in like some tonalities just to add some texturing to the sound, mm-hmm. um, and the. No, everybody in the screening said, do not change a thing. And so they didn't. It was beloved by critics, beloved by audiences, and then was a box office failure. Meanwhile, cut to Bernard Herrmann hanging up his phone and saying, all right, screw me, I guess. I'll just uh, (laughs) I'll get back to work. Those poor electric tonality people, it was a husband and wife, Mm -hmm. they uh, were excluded from nomination for an Academy Award for their incredible work because hmm. it wasn't technically music. Wow. And they didn't belong to the Music Guild or the Musicians Guild. That's tragedy. Tough. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's exactly, I think somebody in a documentary I watched about it said that it was, it was sound effects that were appropriate and music at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. It's just really well done. Yeah, it's it's powerfully affecting. And, uh, you know, you mentioned it's not a horror film. Yeah, yet there's a great deal of suspense in it. And ironically has, uh, like, uh, if we're talking about body count, <laughs> like, uh, uh, the Babadook is unique in horror films uh, in that everybody who's alive at the beginning of the movie is also alive wow, at the end of the movie. Um, yeah. But Forbidden Planet, uh, at That's least a-, a good nine or ten people drop dead. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Thanks, Monster of the Id. <laughs> so... Uh, so yeah, one of the things that I that I do like about it, is, and so when I was thinking of potential companion films, uh, I did think of Sphere, and then when I thought of Sphere, I was like, well, I gotta go. It's like first off, Sphere is not that good of a movie. I like right. the book, but it's not that good of a movie. And I just thought, like, well, if I'm gonna do Sphere, I might as well go all the way back and go to a movie that is good, and mm-hmm. a movie that probably inspired Sphere. I feel like it has to have, right? Yeah, I don't know what was. I don't know what inspired Michael Crichton's novel, which is one of my favorite books ever by anybody. No. Um, I highly recommend reading Sphere, but the movie itself was was just meh. Yeah, it's yeah. It still has that's the thing. Like some of those concepts are so interesting by default that the movie is still yeah. kind of interesting but right. it's just not it's it's not the book but the, but yeah Crichton being the the science fiction and science lover that he is yeah. he had to have seen Forbidden Planet and I'm sure there was something lurking in there that inspired fear so uh, so yeah listeners uh, one of the reasons that I was excited to have this as the companion film is so that we could talk about it and recommend it up and down. We're not going to spoil anything although I, was, I guess I kind of did already but that's not going to keep you from enjoying the film no. Um and so you have this character who, again, just does not realize, and a, and a good portion, and of course I haven't seen the movie in a while, but I seem to recall, and maybe I'm making too big a deal of it when I think of it, um, 
part of uh, Doctor Morbius's uh, the the monsters that come from his, his id have to do with his daughter mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and a an inherent protection that he feels it's violent protection yeah maybe even a, uh, one could say a certain degree of uh, ownership and this feeling of like no she is mine and i'm going to protect protect her against any of these lusty astronauts that are that are clearly interested in her and so it's interesting to me that this guy who is kind of a mad scientist type but what but the most dangerous part of him has to do with a relationship mm-hmm. and his his sense, his desire to control it and, and just oversee it in every capacity and not lose his daughter, you know? And even though, even though like so much of this is like, and so much of it is over the top as far as the, the imagery and the story being told. But when it comes right down to it, you have a father who is, who does not, who's protective of his daughter because he doesn't want to lose her to a suitor. And in doing so, he, he creates monsters, but because the monsters are a function of him, you can go ahead and say he ha- he becomes a monster uh, to keep from losing something. And so once again, we have this idea of like being defined by loss, in this case, anticipating it and trying to prevent it. In the case of Amelia, somebody who is uh, who has experienced it and and basically just lives in that constantly. Hmm. Um, so it's it's a wonderful film. I highly recommend it. And so one thing that I wanted to talk, so we talked about bitterness, we've talked about grief, we've talked about, you know, what can happen when you take negative, what could be seen as negative emotions. And I mean negative only because they, they feel bad, like sadness and anger and grief. They feel bad, you know, but there's not, they're not inherently negative. You know, they're part of the human experience and but because they feel bad, we, I think, especially, uh, I forget which of you made the point, like in the Christian community, it's definitely like, no, no, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. <laughs> Where? Down in my heart. Where? Okay, anyway. Uh, it's like, so, so obviously, I, it's, uh, if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> you know, it just, it, it's, we're told these things that like, we need to be happy all the time. We need to be positive all the time. If we feel sadness, it's, it somehow, sometimes I think we, we feel like it's a, somehow immoral and that we, no, 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 we need to, we got, we'll put that, we'll put that to the side. I'll let God deal with it. But really that's just a way of saying, I don't want to feel it. So I'm not going to deal with it at all. Um, and I feel like whether you know you're dealing with it or not, it's still there. You know, Dr. Morbius, like the reason he has this blind spot is he feels like, no, 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 it's fine. I don't need to worry about this stuff. Um, but it's still there and it's just going to grow just like the Babadook grows. Meanwhile, if Amelia, ju- I mean, she lost her husband and, and obviously there's the emotional impact of that, but there's the practical impact of that. She doesn't have a partner in raising her son, which is already, which is difficult. Um, so this is a this is a big deal and it's something that does need to be grieved and it doesn't you know it does need to be acknowledged as a horrible thing and it does it do, it will require for again from the practical standpoint it will it will require reaching out for help and admittedly admitting that you can't do this on your own um and sometimes it means 
as as we see in the film and in a moment that actually is very empowering but we're also very aware that it does come from a sense of, of bitterness and, and resentment um, when she tells off the the women who are just mm-hmm. rather callously complaining about their lives yeah. and just how much how they don't have time to do anything and just like well okay well my that must be nice. Good for you. I am raising a kid alone and I'm still feeling uh, angry because my husband is dead. And, uh, but good for you. You know, Hey, I'm sure your life is tough too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a really great scene. Um, and it's one that I think though it does denote an anger inside of her. Sometimes that is a conversation that needs to be had. You know, when you, when basically it, it, making other people aware of where you are, even if it makes them uncomfortable, even if it makes you uncomfortable. And one thing that I love, love, I mean, like this solidified for me, the, the themes of the film, you, you can't get away from the Babadook. Like yeah. you can't get rid of him, but you can manage him. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that last scene is to me so mature mm-hmm. and so amazing. And it, and again, like it just, this is a woman who understands, uh, it's, uh, Jennifer Kent, the writer director. This is a woman who understands fully the theme that she is exploring. And as I was reading those stupid Netflix comments, um, people are just like, so there's this ghost that lives in the house and she decides she's going to feed it worms and apparently it'll be happy. It's like, Use your brain. Use your brain just a little bit. Like, clearly you can read and you can type. So try to utilize the things that you use to learn how to do that and try to think what she's trying to do. But again, that's just me being angry and maybe even a little bit bitter. Um, And so... Like I was, I was flabbergasted in in the most positive way. I was bowled over by the maturity and under an and intense emotional understanding that that last scene represents. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the, uh, again, extending from that visually speaking, like in, it's not the very first shot of the film, but one of the early shots that you referenced earlier is, is her son hugging her and like, uh, like almost appearing to choke her. Yeah. And there's a, a, a scene pretty early in the film where he's, you know, getting dressed for an activity and he goes to hug her and he hugs her a little too hard. And she's like, don't do that. And she, you know, she snaps mm-hmm. at him, like, don't yeah. do that and pushes him away. And you can see the look on his face again, wonderful performance by him. You can see the look on his face of, of hurt and rejection. Like, I just, I just wanted to hug you because mm-hmm. I love you and you've pushed me away from it and one of the the thing that affects me so much is the final shot of the film is Mm -hmm. her in this you you could almost say contented place clutching her son hugging him very very closely Mm -hmm. and it's after she has that thing is in the basement and and i spend at least some degree of time going down there and and managing it i love the way you phrased that that it's like that we're we're keeping this thing where it is we're not denying it mm-hmm. we're not pretending that it's not a thing yeah but but it's there and we give it just enough attention and and that i think could be viewed as a very healthy way of managing any sort of negative emotions like we're going to give them the attention that they demand mm-hmm. and then we're going to move back up and engage with the people that we love we're going to invite our next door neighbor over to our son's birthday party 
on his day. I love that he <laughs> says, my very first one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's not, no, it's just the first one you're celebrating on the day that you were yeah. born. Yeah. And I just think it's, there's a profound, uh, I do agree with you. It's such a mature and, and powerful, powerful metaphor for how to, how to deal with negative emotions. Uh, and I think Christians have a very unfortunate tendency to try to pretend that they don't exist yet. And I'm embarrassingly unable to recall the chapter and verse or even the book. Uh, I believe it might be Isaiah, but it, but it describes Christ acquainted with grief. That, that is how our savior is described. Yet we ourselves try so much to deny uh, that, that those negative emotions exist within us. Yeah. And of course, she keeps in the basement, as you said. Well, what was in the basement previously? It was all of her husband's stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, that is where... And, of course, she's not just going to get rid of it or anything. you got to keep it somewhere. But, like, it's the place that is off limits. Samuel's not allowed to go down there. Yeah. Um, and it's just, like, it's this shrine of... Not grief, because grief means that she goes... She will go down there or whatever. But, like, it's this thing that is completely cut off. She will not let herself acknowledge it, but it's still there. And of course that is where she needs to keep this thing because that's what it's a representation of. Um, and even when she goes down there, like it like essentially screams in her face and she kind of is bent backwards by it and then just kind of overpowers it and then goes back to her life. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, that's, that's the thing. Like I'm sure everybody has something in their life that they grieve over. And maybe the grief isn't as sharp and painful as it was when it happened initially. Um, but every once in a while it'll come back. Um, yeah. All right. I'll go ahead and say this. I was a boy. Was I not planning on saying this, but I'm going to say it because uh, people like when I say stuff on this show, um, <laughs> got to give people what they want. Um, so, uh, as I had mentioned uh, last August, I uh, I went to my old church in Ventura, and my friend uh, Garrett, his father is the pastor, and uh, so when I saw him, he gave me a big hug, and, and it was really nice to be welcomed. Uh, since then, I came to realize, it wasn't, it wasn't something I was super aware of in the moment, but since then, I've come to realize, and this is a weird thing to say, I've... Uh, that when he hugged me that was like the first time in many years that i had been hugged by somebody father aged hmm. like i mean you know i'm i'm like i'm i'm patted on the back and hugged by like guys my age and everything's fine um but just in that and like it felt really good not merely to be welcomed you know back mm-hmm. to this church but also um to to get that hug and then i was in denver uh last week and I saw my friend, uh, Nate and he lives next door to his parents. She's crazy to me, but, uh, and they, and they've always been super awesome to me. I've known them at this point for 23 years. And, um, so we went over and, and said hi to them real quick and they hugged me and, you know, and of course it felt good when his mom hugged me, but like when his dad hugged me, like it felt marvelous. And it's a thing that like, it's a thing I didn't realize I was missing until suddenly I, yeah. I had it again. I was like, oh my gosh. And then, and then a little bit of biz- bitterness kicked in, just a little bit. Um, and then I prayed about it and tried to get it out. But it's just um, this feeling of like, man, 
these people, these jerks, these stupid friends of mine, like they can get this anytime they want. And they probably don't even realize how awesome it is. And meanwhile, like I have to, like I go years in between (laughs) and it was a very, it was a very sad thing, but that, but the acknowledgement of it, I think is part of understanding what my life is without my father and there's nothing wrong with mourning that. There's nothing more with uh, nothing wrong with grieving that and saying like, yeah, that sucks. That's an awful thing. I wish he was still around. He's not. And it's not that that's okay, but I can. I'm still here, and I can still live with that. And it doesn't mean that God is not good. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love me, and all these kind of things. And so, and I feel like for me, the acknowledgement, the acknowledgement of what I was feeling. And the acknowledgement that, like, yeah, this sucks. I'm not, I'm not happy about this. Not that I, I was about to say, I'm not happy about this right now. Implying at some time, at some point, it's like, man, I'm glad my dad's gone. Like, it's not, <laughs> it's not that. But uh, it, it's, a, it's a, I don't know. It, it goes to what to what you guys are saying, which is sometimes just giving it a name, and sometimes just allowing yourself to feel it, and just say, I'm feeling this. It hurts to feel. But it's part, it's part of my life, but God will, you know, God is still there and he still loves me and all that kind of thing. So, um, I do really want to, I do, uh, quickly want to say this thing. And again, this is the, uh, verse that, uh, reminded me of that Dr. Morbius quote. This is first Peter five verses six through 10. Humble yourself therefore, and under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers through the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Uh, I love love that, the progression of that verse. I love the, you know, I mean, everyone has heard that devil prowling around like a roaring lion, but now imagine, now imagine the Babadook. Like, it's just this thing that's just lurking, just waiting to latch on to something and be like, I can use that. Oh, you're angry at your kid and you wish that your, your husband was still alive, but it like, not as well as your kid, but you wish that the kid was gone and that the husband was here. It's like, I can definitely use that, especially if you don't even really acknowledge that that's how you're feeling. No question. I can use that. And so it's, you know, uh, this is a verse about vigilance. Um, but it's also a verse that I think can give you hope because if we look at Amelia, God, it says that God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The word establish always struck me as interesting. What do you guys think of that? I know I'm putting you on the spot. Like when I say, like, I know what restoration means. I know what confirmation means. I know what strengthen means. Establish in this I instance. Think it's, what uh, do you think? My knee jerk react or uh, response to that is that you're such a reactionary, Rob. I know. Uh, I'm going to react right now. So establish, I think, is uh, could be said um, like that means you are whole. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you're not established until you're whole, and you can't be whole until these other things sort of happen first. Yeah. I don't know. I I kind of view it when I when I was looking at it earlier today. Um, I kind of view it as just like almost 
there's a wholeness to it and there's like a there's a completion to it and there's almost uh, I'm rel- I, I feel like there's a better way to say this there's almost an assigning of identity hmm. there it's like you've been established this is what you are I've restored confirmed and strengthened you and now this is what you are you were suffering for a while that's done and now here you are you've been strengthened you've been restored and now you are finished yeah, and I, I think, too... Uh, and not finished like a threat, like, you're finished. Not like that. Right. But like, right. you are completed. Completed yeah. and whole. Yeah. Uh, and within the word, too, uh, is uh, you could extract the word stable. Mm. Um, that, like, you know, if you, if you... It's not a real iteration of it, but you could say if you're stable-ish, you know, like, yeah. established, you know, like, it's... And, and also what I think of literally just in this moment is that oftentimes bitterness is described in terms of roots, Mm-hmm. That uh, like there's a root of bitterness, yeah. But if you think of establish, also could have some roots, some yeah. some foundational, um, like digging in, like it's not going anywhere. It's established, mm-hmm. um, and I think there's a profound piece to that idea of not only will he restore, which is like bringing you back up to the place and and confirm it, like validate it yeah. and strengthen and undergird it, but then it's like, well, now it's stable. Yeah. Now now it's not going anywhere. Um, and I think it, it's a it's a profoundly affecting verse. Yeah, and I feel like if you want, I, I genuinely feel like if you look at okay, First Peter verses five, six through ten, and you look at the Babadook, that's it. I mean, like that is a, in my opinion, a really perfectly visualized uh, illustration of this passage. Mm-hmm. Now. At no point does she say, as we were talking about in the nightmare last week, at no point does she say, like, in the name of Jesus Christ, Babadook, get yeah, out of here. She doesn't do that. But what does happen is love, ultimately, is mm-hmm. what uh, fights this thing. Mm-hmm. Her love for her son and her son's love for him and his unconditional love for him. Mm-hmm. That like, And sometimes that means that he has to fight against sometimes literally fight against what she has become because he sees what's underneath and he sees who she truly is. Not this pale, crappy, awful, terrifying imitation of her. Mm -hmm. He knows who she actually is and that that is, and that it's worth fighting for. You just said something really interesting and it only just struck me that it's like the idea of like, uh, what's on the front and what's underneath. Mm -hmm. Like she spends most of the movie with, you know, like the face front being like, oh, this is who I really am. And then the Babadook takes power by what's underneath. Mm-hmm. But what you just said is is really struck me because when she's in the full throes of the Babadook, yeah. now the son recognizes in a bit of profundity, well, my mom's underneath. Yeah. Now my mom's underneath and needs to rise to the surface. And, yeah. and just that whole interplay of who's who's on the front and who's you know, kind of in the shadows right now and recognizing the difference there and how to bring forward no. the, you know, your, the true self, what, who's really you and recognize the rest as a trespasser. But oh yeah, that just bowled me over when you said that. That's great. Well, I do what I can. <laughs> um, and so to, to kind of sum this up a little bit and, and, you know, kind of give people some encouragement uh, from a Christian standpoint, you know, uh, no matter how bitter we are about the things that, that have gone on in our own lives. Maybe it's something we've done. Maybe it's something that was done to us. Maybe it's something that nobody is particularly responsible for. It's just the, Hey, it's the way the cookie crumbles, you know, (laughs) maybe that's a bit euphemistic, but, uh, 
you know, and we can get bitter about it. We can get angry and just not deal with it. Or, or even we deal with it to the point of it's like, this is now the defining element of us. Um, but that's not, it's not who we are. And that is not, and, and God loves us despite those things. And he can, he can help us to vomit those things out to go with what you were saying, Reed. Um, and that, uh, I don't know, just to go to, you know, what, what you guys were talking about earlier, this feeling of like, oh, our bitterness will not let us love God, but despite that, he will still love us. And then that love will restore us, confirm us, strengthen us and establish us. Um, and, uh, I think that is where we are done. We've been going for a while now, so I think we can probably finish up. Uh, listeners, we've talked about a lot here. Um, so if you have any comments, feel free to leave them on the website, morethanonelesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at morelessons. You can email me, tyler at morethanonelesson.com. If you have uh, anything to say to me, Robert, or Reed, uh, you can go ahead and email me. I will be sure to forward it on to them as well. Um, let's see. Like it's on Facebook. Okay. Uh, are you guys on Twitter? Reed. I am. Uh, just at Reed Lackey. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Robert, I forget. You're just kind of... I think I have a Twitter account. Lean into the mic. I think I have a Twitter account. I think you do too, but I don't remember what it is. I, I set it up one day and I never use it. Yeah. You're kind of off the grid, Robert. A little bit. kind of like it. That's the way you like it. I don't care for it. It makes it very difficult at the end of these episodes. To pin me down? Yeah, To exactly. define me? To establish me? Whoa. What? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, next week we will be talking about a movie that is also on Netflix. So far, all four movies, all four main movies that we've been talking about are available on Netflix. So listeners, Josh will be back next week. We will be talking about the Roman Polanski film, Rosemary's baby. There will not be a companion film. Uh, we'll only be, we'll be devoting the entire time to that. So seek it out. It's wonderful. I love Rosemary's baby. Do you guys enjoy that film? I do. I need to revisit it because I'm in the I am in the outlier group that I, I don't care much for it, but I need to revisit it because I saw it when I was younger, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe now's a good maybe now's a good excuse that you guys are going to be talking about it. It is a strange, yeah, it's a strange type of horror movie. It, it one that I feel like couldn't it couldn't be more of its time, you know, with just that kind of well, the very standard Polanski thing of uh, everybody is against you, you have no allies. You thought you did, but they're against you too. Um, it's interesting, actually. If you like, that's one of the big things that uh, that I find fascinating about Plansky's filmmaking is over and over again, it's isolation, paranoia. Everyone's against you, and you're not wrong. Um, so, okay, and you're not wrong. Yeah, it's just it's like, is everyone against me? Yes, they are. You are correct. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, go ahead and uh, watch that. In the meantime, Robert, thank you for being here. Absolutely. And Reed. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Reed, especially. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Robert, thank you. Uh, but yeah, so, and thank you guys at home for listening, and we will get you next time. Bye. Bye.